This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We are here today to consider nominations for five very important positions. On the first panel, we will hear from Mr. Thomas Nides to be the ambassador to Israel, Mr. David Cohen to be the ambassador to Canada, and Dr. Cynthia Tellez to be ambassador to Costa Rica. Uh, we're also uh, pleased to have a number of our colleagues here to introduce some of these nominees. So I'll turn to them in order. Senator Klobuchar, I understand you'll be introducing Mr. Nice. Well, thank you very much, Chairman, and to Ranking Member Risch as well. Uh, the work this committee does touches the lives of people all over the world, and we thank you for that. Uh, right now, in the wake of new leadership in Israel, it is a critically important moment in our alliance with our friend and ally. And we have with us today uh, someone with the experience, credibility, and respect to serve as our ambassador to Israel. And he just happens to have been born in Minnesota, as usual. Um, and I am so proud to introduce my good friend, Tom Nides. Uh, with Tom today is his son, Max, um, who will testify to the fact that his dad is wise and patient all the time. Right, Max? Okay, good. Um, and I want to tell you a little bit about Tom. He grew up in Duluth as the youngest of eight siblings. His father, Arnold, served as the president of Temple Israel and of the Duluth Jewish Federation, and his mother, Shirley, was a teacher. His sister, Jane, told the Duluth News Tribune that their parents would be going crazy with joy if they were alive to see their son nominated to serve as ambassador to Israel. Um, I was amused the day that Tom was nominated to read the headline in the Duluth News, which said simply this, man who grew up in Duluth nominated ambassador to Israel. Tom was innovative from a young age. As a senior at Duluth East High School, he was tasked with finding a speaker for his high school graduation. Being the proud Minnesotan he was, he wanted Walter Mondale, who just happened to be vice president of the United States. He learned that the best time as a high schooler to catch the vice president's chief of staff was at 5.30 in the morning. He reached out and Walter Mondale agreed to speak at his high school graduation. A year later, Tom and I met as interns for the vice president, and I remember walking in and seeing him sitting at the desk um, as a 20-year-old, his uh, legs sprawled up on the desk above him, sitting on the chair with a vice presidential pin on his lapel, and I watched him answer the phone and say, Tom Nides with the vice president's office, in a tone that would convince anyone that he was no 20-year-old intern, but he was, in fact, the chief of staff. Uh, while I was assigned to do the furniture inventory um, and write down the serial number of every lamp and desk, Tom got to save the Lake Superior foghorn for the city of Duluth, and just like everything else, he got it done. Since then, he continued to serve ably, and most importantly for our work here, optimistically, in many leadership positions, including in the halls of Congress and in two presidential administrations. He was a trusted advisor to Congressman Tony Quello and to Speaker Tom Foley. Uh, he worked for Mickey Cantor in the office of the United States Trade Representative, and he later served as Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources with Secretary Clinton under President Obama. During that time, he distinguished himself 
as a key voice on Israel and an advocate for humanitarian support for our U.S. allies. For his outstanding service, he was awarded the Secretary of State's Distinguished Service Award, our country's highest diplomatic honor. His private sector and trade background, as well as his strong background in Middle Eastern policy, makes him the perfect choice to serve as our ambassador to Israel, one of our strongest and most enduring allies. Members on both sides of the aisle understand that the deep friendship between our two countries is based on shared values and that Israel's interests in the Middle East are strongly aligned with our own. Support for Israel can never, ever become a partisan issue. Now more than ever, we need an ambassador dedicated to fostering lasting peace and stability. I'm confident that as ambassador, Tom will further the close alliance between our two nations and our commitment to prosperity in the region for generations to come. He will do a phenomenal job, Mr. Chair, and I strongly urge the committee to support his nomination. Thank you to the members of the committee. Thank you very much. Senator Casey, Senator Toomey, I understand you'll be introducing Mr. Cohen. I'll ask Senator Casey to go first and then Senator Toomey. Mr. Chairman, thanks very much. I'm honored to be here with you and appreciate this opportunity, as well as um, thanking the ranking member for this opportunity to say a few words about my friend David L. Cohen to serve as ambassador to Canada. I'm especially grateful to be joined by Senator Toomey. Uh, we don't always appear together on big issues, but today we're united in our uh, recommendation and our commendation of the work of, of David Cohen. I've known David for more than a quarter of a century, and I've seen him in all kinds of circumstances, most of them in connection with uh, public service. Many of you know that um, David served, uh, in addition to being a very successful lawyer and, and uh, doing the, the work of, of a lawyer and an advocate, he served as chief of staff to the mayor of Philadelphia, Ed Rendell. To be chief of staff to, of, to be chief of staff to, of, of a mayor of one of America's largest cities is about as difficult a job as anyone can imagine. Uh, but he did, did it well, and he served the people of Philadelphia with distinction. I think it also uh, bears repeating that uh, sometimes the most difficult jobs in public service uh, also are the jobs that teach you a lot about what public service is. David understands the commitment you've got to make to be a public servant. <clears throat> I think he's demonstrated that over and over again. In addition to his work for the city and his work as a lawyer, later, of course, he joined Comcast. And I tried to itemize or list all of the roles he played at Comcast, and I'll just give you just a, uh, a, a, a partial list of the work that he did, serving in major leadership positions at Comcast, whether it was, whether it was legal work or government affairs, communications, administration, real estate. Um, did a lot of work in diversity and inclusion uh, to, to help lead a major uh, corporation in, in the city of Philadelphia, and of course, charitable giving. All of those roles he played, all of that work he did and more, um, helped Comcast to grow and to be such an important uh, corporate partner in Philadelphia for so many uh, institutions in the city. His community service uh, 
um, I think is unparalleled. And whether it's at Penn Medicine, the work he did at the um, Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce, uh, the work he's done it with organizations like the Urban League and on and on. We could list many more. I don't think I have to remind members of this committee, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, about the importance of our relationship with Canada, our second largest trading partner, uh, ever more so important in the context of the challenges we face today, whether it's uh, fighting COVID-19 or future, bar future biosecurity challenges, managing climate change, addressing the opioid crisis, on and on, trade issues, economic issues. A lot of those issues, of course, involve many, many Pennsylvania businesses and businesses across the country that rely upon uh, the stability and the strength of this relationship. I'd say this in conclusion, Mr. Chairman. Um, I, I, I've served um, in the Senate now, this is my 15th year, and um, in those years I've seen David commit himself to excellence in every, every job that he, and every task that he was, um, he, he was presented with. I also got to know over those uh, quarter century or more, his wife Rhonda, who in her own way has contributed so much to public service. I asked Rhonda just before this hearing, I said, Rhonda, is David ready? And she said, yes, and that's all I needed to know. He's ready to do this job at a critically important time in our nation's history. The last thing I'll say is this. There's a, a line in the scriptures, to, him, to whom much has been given, much is expected. The good Lord gave David a lot, an intellect, a strength of character, a commitment to helping people, and we've asked him to do a lot. Um, and much is and has been expected of him, and he has never failed to deliver. I have no doubt that will be the case when he serves as our ambassador to Canada. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Toomey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Risch, and members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Thank you for allowing me to introduce briefly my friend David Cohen and express my enthusiastic support for his nomination to be our next U.S. Ambassador to Canada. And thank you, David, for your willingness to serve. I was uh, delighted to see your wife, Rhonda, is here with you, and I appreciate the sacrifices required of individuals, but also their families, when they choose to go into public service, and I am glad to see that you're up for this challenge. You know, there's a passage about David in Buzz Bissinger's excellent book, A Prayer for the City. It's a book that chronicles the administration of Philadelphia Mayor Ed Rendell, which, as Senator Casey pointed out, is an administration in which David Cohen served as chief of staff. Uh, I think the passage is relevant for today's hearing, so I'm going to read it briefly. It's about David Cohen, and it says, and I quote, it wasn't just his prodig prodigious capacity for work that made him so good at what he did. It was his patience as a negotiator, the way in which he determined the result he wanted, and then, as Macadon put it, exhibited a willingness to stay with something forever until he got there. In the meantime, he never got frustrated. He never personalized or railed or sought vendettas. Once again, the normal human impulse to get angry and become agitated, it never even surfaced, end quote. See, Mr. Chairman, I think there's a word for this kind of quiet 
thoughtful, persistent approach to getting things done. It's called diplomacy. David's a longtime resident of Pennsylvania, a very active member in the community, as Senator Casey pointed out. Um, I think it's important to point out that while serving as Chief of Staff to Mayor Ed Rendell through the 90s, he played a central role in pulling the city out of really dire fiscal circumstances and placing it on a stable footing. He led a prestigious U.S. law firm prior to joining Comcast Corporation in 2002. Senator Casey mentioned some of the many roles that David has played at Comcast. I would just point out that in addition to helping to forge Comcast into a telecommunications powerhouse, David also helped to establish Comcast as a really exceptional corporate citizen for Philadelphia and Pennsylvania and our country including, among many other things, donating millions of dollars to myriad charitable causes across the country. David's many career accomplishments are accompanied by an extensive record of service. As Senator Casey pointed out, he's long served on many, many boards and advisory panels supporting Philadelphia in particular, and its academic, athletic, arts, communities, just to name two. He was, for over a decade, the chairman of the Board of Trustees of the University of Pennsylvania, and currently, he sits alongside Senator Casey and myself on the U.S. Semi-Quincentennial Commission. Now, all the members of this committee understand full well how important Canada is as one of America's allies and neighbors. We rely on Canada as a major trade, energy, and security partner. Frankly, Pennsylvania's proximity to Canada uh, gives us a particularly strong tie to that country and our representation representation of Canada is all the more important for folks in the Commonwealth. Fact is, President Biden made an outstanding choice in choosing David for this post. David Cohen's very strong business background, his deep understanding of government at all levels, and his passion for service prepare him well for this role. So, Mr. Chairman, I enthusiastically support his nomination and encourage my colleagues to do likewise. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and least, uh, last but not least, our distinguished colleague from California, who's going to introduce Dr. Tejas, Senator Padilla. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member uh, Rich, and members of the committee. Uh, it is my honor to introduce Dr. Cynthia Tejas this morning uh, from the great state of California and President Biden's nominee to serve as ambassador to Costa Rica. Uh, as a clinical professor in the UCLA School of Medicine's Department of Psychiatry and a widely published researcher, Dr. Theus is widely recognized for her work in healthcare and especially in improving the lives of those with mental illness. For more than three decades, Dr. Theus has directed UCLA's Spanish-speaking psychosocial clinic where she has helped train a generation of clinicians to provide culturally competent mental health services for Latino communities. In addition to her work in healthcare, Dr. Theus brings life experience from the region and from serving on a number of nonprofit organizations and government commissions. As a longtime member of the Board of Directors of the Pacific Council on International Policy, she has worked closely with industry and governmental uh, actors to promote global engagement in Los Angeles, throughout California, and beyond. She has served as a commissioner in the city of Los Angeles, sec America's second largest city, for almost 20 years, as well as having served on the board of the California Community Foundation, uh, 
and for nearly a decade serving on the board of the California Endowment, California's largest health foundation. Dr. Theis also continues a family legacy of public service, including deep ties to Costa Rica. Her father, Raymond Theis, was the first Latino to serve as a U.S. ambassador, appointed by President Kennedy in 1961. Dr. Theis grew up determined to fight for the world's inequities from a young age. During her father's ambassadorship, she lived in Costa Rica, where she found her calling for both public service and public health. Dr. Theis is a uniquely well-qualified person to represent the United States in Costa Rica, an important regional partner. She brings a wealth of experience, dedication, and compassion to her role representing the United States in Costa Rica. I strongly support her nomination and I urge for her swift confirmation. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Padilla. With that background, maybe we should have Dr. Tejas work with us here in Washington to solve a few things. <laughs> but thank you very much. Thank you all the senators who made presentations. Um, let me turn now uh, first to a, few, a little bit of committee business before I get to the nominees. I want to appreciate the ranking member's willingness to move forward with nine nominees that the committee was scheduled to consider today. We postponed the hearing this afternoon out of a deference to one of our members, but that has been rescheduled for next week. I'm also glad that you agreed to a few of the nominees that I proposed for hearings next week and that you indicated, albeit with many caveats, that you may be ready to notice more. I certainly hope that materializes. I remain deeply concerned, however, by the delays and obstacles facing the bulk of nominees when it comes to securing your approval for their hearings. It is inexplicably taking an average of six weeks, almost 40 days, from the time a nominee's file is complete to the time that uh, the minority is willing to move forward, and that's just for a hearing. This is almost four weeks slower than it took during a similar period in 2009. I, I ask, how's that possible? As you know, we have a massive backlog at the State Department, USAID, and other nominations pending before the committee. We have almost reached 80, and the number continues to grow. The nominations uh, pending include ambassadorships to China, Japan, and countries throughout Latin America, Africa, and Europe, places where competition with China and Russia is real, where we need ambassadors in place to project U.S. power, to assist our citizens, and to promote our companies. So I just asked Senator Risch, I, I, I appreciate the work we've done so far. I need your full cooperation and participation to tackle this backlog. Um, I would just note that when faced with similar numbers in 2009, the majority and the minority worked together to move 57 nominees in just one month. There's no reason we can't do that if we work together. To date, I have noticed only nominees who the ranking member has agreed to. In fact, I've bent over backwards to restore the tradition of comedy that was abandoned in the last Congress, but the slow pace and many obstacles to moving nominees is unacceptable. It's dangerous. We're less safe when our national security agencies are so short-staffed. We have to fix this problem. We owe it to the Senate, and we owe it to all Americans, and I look forward to working with you to try to achieve that. Let me turn to our nominees. Uh, welcome 
and thank you and your families for your willingness to serve the country in this capacity. I'll briefly address uh, each of the positions uh, that you have been nominated for. Mr. Nides, welcome back to the committee. I'm pleased to see such a qualified and capable nominee for one of our most vital allies. Your extensive experience in management, including as the Deputy Secretary of State, will surely serve you well in navigating the particulars of our embassy in Jerusalem. As Israel settles into its new government, it's critical that we have an experienced diplomat in place to help pursue many of our shared U.S. and Israeli interests across national security, technology, cultural, and religious exchanges. And while some may try to exploit any small fissures or differences in policy opinions between our two countries, this committee, the Senate, and the Congress as a whole have repeatedly confirmed our unwavering support for Israel's security, its right to defend itself in the face of neighbors who continue to threaten to wipe it off the map. Finally, uh, to all our friends who may or may not be watching in Israel and here, uh, let me wish you all a Hag Sukkot Sameach, um, and uh, I look forward uh, to hearing from Mr. Nides. I'm also pleased that we are reviewing the nomination of our next ambassador to Canada. Our alliance with our northern neighbors, one of the most important partnerships that we have, united by shared security interests and strengthened by expansive economic ties. Our nations are linked by a common commitment to democratic principles and to tackling the most pressing challenges on the global stage. It's with the deepest respect that we also remember that our Canadian brothers and sisters fought alongside our men and women for decades, most recently in Afghanistan. Yet during the last administration, the, this most essential alliance was too often marked by tensions and tariffs, marred by insults aimed at Canadian leaders, and neglected by an absentee U.S. ambassador. It's imperative that we rebuild our relationship with Canada, deepen our collaboration to address the challenges posed by China and Russia, and work together to address the threats posed by climate change. So Mr. Cohen, I have no doubt you are the right person to tackle these challenges and upon confirmation will be a strong and effective ambassador. I'm also pleased that we're considering the nomination of our next ambassador to Costa Rica as it celebrates its bicentennial. Costa Rica stands out for its consistency on the global stage and leadership on environmental stewardship. Costa Rica is also an example of democratic resiliency in Central America at a time when the region is plagued by weak rule of law and leaders who have embraced authoritarian tactics. It's also unique that we're considering a candidate whose father served as ambassador to Costa Rica under President Kennedy. I'm pleased that Dr. Tellez, if confirmed, will carry forward a family commitment to strengthening our partnership and advancing U.S. interests in Costa Rica. We look forward to hearing your testimonies. Let me now turn to the distinguished ranking member, Senator Rich, for his opening remarks. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I appreciate your comments regarding nominations. Uh, they're always difficult. And as I've said publicly and privately to you, uh, having been a governor, I know how important nominations are. And it's impossible to govern if you don't have your team in place. I do want to review, however, the record uh, on uh, the numbers. Uh, first of all, I'm going to compare the 116th Congress to the 117th Congress. In the 116th Congress, the average Senate Foreign Relations Committee nominations processing time with uh, you as the ranking member was uh, 94 days. Uh, on the average Senate Foreign Relations Committee nomination processing time in the 117th Congress so far 
With me as the ranking member, it's been 44 days, 50 days less. The average processing time, obviously and clearly, is 50 days less, and the numbers don't lie. On some specifics, take, for instance, the uh, Assistant Secretary for Democracy, Human Rights, Labor, uh, under the, the Trump nominee, uh, Robert Destero uh, was uh, 276 days. The Biden nominee, Sarah Morgan, was 76 days. The U.S. U.N. Representative, Andrew Bremberg, was 245 days under the Trump nominee. And under this administration, uh, the Biden nominee, uh, Bathsheba Crocker, was 56 days. The Assistant Secretary for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human uh, Rights and Justice, um, excuse me, Assistant Secretary for Civil, uh, Civilian Secretary uh, Security, Democracy, and Human Rights, Marshall Billingsley, was 378 days. Yusra uh, uh, Zia was 34 days. U.S. Arms, uh, U.S. for Arms Control under President Trump, Marsha Billingsley, was 244 days. Bonnie Jenkins under this administration was 34 days. Ambassador to Mexico, Chris Landu, was 57 days under Trump. Ken Salazar under this administration for Ambassador to Mexico was 17 days. The number of days from file complete to business meeting uh, for U.S. Management uh, Department Secretary of Management, Brian Bulatow, was 319 days. The Biden nominee, Brian McEwen, was 18 days. The Assistant Secretary for Political Military Affairs, uh, Clark Cooper, under Trump nominee, was 260 days, whereas Jessica Lewis was 49 days uh, as, the as the Biden nominee. Uh, the Assistant Secretary for Near Eastern Affairs, uh, David uh, Schenker, uh, was, uh, for the Trump nominee, was uh, uh, almost one year, 358 days. Barbara Leaf was 68 uh, days. Um, other key uh, positions held by Democrats during the Trump administration, the legal advisor to the Department of State, C.J. Mahoney, was 187 days from file complete to hearing. Uh, Sarah Cleveland, the file has not uh, been complete. Uh, the ambassador uh, for Pakistan, Bill Todd, under uh, Trump nominee, was 180 days from file complete to hearing. Of course, there's been none, no nominee. Mr. Chairman, I'd ask unanimous consent that this matrix be entered into the record. Without objection. I commit to you to continue to work as best I can, again, realizing that uh, these are, uh, th there, there's always a, a stress on these. We take our vetting responsibilities seriously, just as you did when uh, uh, the president was another party. Uh, I respect that. I appreciate it. And uh, we're, we are going to uh, continue to uh, do the best we can to, uh, uh, to vet these uh, people and as quickly as we possibly can. Moving to the uh, panel that we have before us today, uh, I want to thank the nominees and, of course, their families for the sacrifice that they will share. On the nomination for ambassador to Israel, Israel is America's most vital ally in a very turbulent region. It faces, it faces serious threats, and it's in the national security interest of the United States to ensure Israel is adequately equipped to meet these challenges. I am de deeply disappointed that the House of Representatives have attempted to pull the Iron Dome funding from the continuing resolution, expect the Senate uh, will remedy that issue very quickly. Since the Biden administration took office, we have seen no movement to expand or strengthen the Abraham Accords. I think most everyone that moves in the area of uh, foreign relations agrees that the Abraham Accords were tremendous steps forward in uh, the uh, relationship uh, we have and others have in the Middle East. Many of us have concerns that the administration uh, has uh, instead uh, doubled down on the failed Palestinian policies of the past. I'm also disappointed the administration continues to provide assistance 
uh, to the Palestinians without securing any concessions on the egregious pay-to-slay program. Instead of normalizing these appalling practices uh, through deeper relationships with the Palestinian authorities and the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the administration should pursue changes in, in Palestinian policies that glorify and promote violence and ter terrorism. Uh, I look forward to hearing your thoughts on these important issues. On the nomination for the ambassador to Canada, uh, first of all, I appreciated the opportunity to meet personally uh, with the nominee. And we discussed uh, the importance of uh, a couple of uh, issues that are important to me and important to America. One is the Columbia River Treaty. The other is the opening of the Canadian border. And I was pleased to hear his thoughts on that and uh, appeared to be on board uh, as far as both issues are concerned. The Columbia River Treaty remains an important issue uh, to the entire Northwest delegation. I expect that you will prioritize these negotiations should you be confirmed uh, as we discussed. As for the U.S.-Canadian border, I'm disappointed the administration's decision on money to extend re restrictions on non-essential travel from Canada to the United States at land ports of entry. These restrictions are causing significant economic and emotional distress to communities such as those in North Idaho that depend on well-regulated cross-border traffic. The administration should consider this decision, reconsider this decision, and reopen our land border with Canada as soon as possible. Finally, the nomination of Ambassador to Costa Rica. Costa Rica is an outpost of democratic governance in Central America and a valuable trade, security, and diplomatic partner. As many as 50,000 Americans call Costa Rica home, in large part due to its political and economic uh, stability. Nevertheless, Costa Rica's democratic model has come under acute pressure due to instability generated by the Ortega regime in Nicaragua and the COVID-19 epidemic. Costa Rica has also sought deeper relations, with, deeper relations with China, which comes with its own set of challenges. I hope to hear how you plan to manage those U.S. relations with this strategic partner in Central America. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Rich. Just very briefly, um, I must say that, um, of course, one has to compare apples with apples and oranges with oranges in terms of dates. The reality is, is that for the first nine months of the Trump administration, it took an average of just 22 days, 22 days, to get a nominee scheduled for a hearing, despite many serious and well-documented vetting issues. It's currently taking an average of 36 days over three weeks longer than uh, that period of time for uh, the minority to clear nominees with completed files for hearings. So that's a challenge. And the bottom line is we have nearly 80 people. The final thing I'll say is that, unfortunately, the previous administration did not vet nominees. So looking at numbers was extremely meaningless. We had nominees that had unprecedented vetting issues, lying to this committee lying to the IRS, indictments, racism, Me Too issues that all came out as a result of the vetting. That's why it took time. So I, I, I don't want to belabor it, but I do want to work with the ranking member uh, because as I've heard him say, and he said again today, that as a governor, he understands the importance of having people placed in the executive branch to execute. I agree with him in this context as well, and hopefully we can get to a point where uh, we are uh, promoting the number of nominees for the process. We still have the floor issues uh, that have been vexing us, uh, which is uh, maybe beyond this committee's pay grade, but nonetheless is a, a critical issue where Republican members 
exclusively are holding up nominees on the floor uh, to the detriment of the national security and interests of the United States. Um, May I respond? Senator Risch, of Thank course. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, first of all, I, uh, I, I hope we don't mix the issue of what's happening on the floor versus what's happening in the committee. Uh, I'm, like you, I am likewise frustrated uh, with what's happening on the floor, and certainly this is, for, uh, this is an issue that should be uh, tackled by the uh, senior members of the leadership of uh, both of our teams and, and uh, get this removed so we can move forward uh, on that. Uh, I'm not going to debate the quality of the of the appointments. Obviously, that would take many, many more days than what we have here. Uh, I'll just say that uh, I do commit that I'm going to continue to work with you to move as rapidly as we can. I have no doubt that we'll wind up with similar frustrations, but we'll work through them as best we can. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, we ask each of you to summarize uh, your testimony in about five minutes or so. Your full statements will be included in the record without objection. Uh, and we'll start uh, with Mr. Nides uh, to make his presentation. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman Mendez, Ranking Member Risch, and members of the committee. It's a privilege to appear today. It's an honor to be asked to serve as the ambassador to the state of Israel. I want to thank President Biden, Secretary Blinken, for the confidence in me, and I'm grateful to share this day with my family. I'd like to thank Senator Klobuchar for her kind words of introductions. As the Senator mentioned, she and I have been friends for over 40 years, having served as interns together for Vice President Walter Mondale. I'm so, so grateful for her friendship. As Senator Klobuchar mentioned, I grew up in Duluth, Minnesota, the youngest of seven children. My parents were leaders in a vibrant but small Jewish community. My dad was the president of our temple, our chairman of our local UJA. My mom was a leader of both Hadassah and sisterhood. We grew up believing being Jewish was more than a religion, but a way of life. Most importantly, my parents impressed upon my siblings and me the importance, as they say in Hebrew, tzedakah, or charity, giving to your community and caring about others. During my first trip to Israel, I worked on a kibbutz where I discovered the importance of this very young and vulnerable nation. As Jews everywhere are celebrating the holiday of Sukkot, there is no greater honor than to be asked to strengthen the ties between the United States and the state of Israel. My many trips to Israel, both in the government and the private sector, have strengthened my commitment to sustain Israel as a democratic and Jewish state. The U.S.-Israel relationship has long been based on both common values and strategic interests. Remain united in our shared commitment to democracy, economic prosperity, and regional security. So should I have the honor of being confirmed, let me just spend a moment on a few of the priorities that will guide me. First, the United States remains unwavering in its commitment to the Israel security, supported by a 10-year, $38 billion memorandum of understanding. Israel is one of our closest security partners, encountering the broad spectrum of threats. Chief among them is the critical threat that Iran poses. President Biden has made it clear his commitment to ensure that Iran will never develop a nuclear weapon. Upholding Israel's security serves America's national security interests, ensures that we will always have a strong, reliable, and secure partner. Second, the United States remains committed to advancing the depth and breadth of our bonds 
between our people, including our ever-expanding economic relationship. Israel's startup nation economy is welcoming for U.S. businesses, with U.S. companies establishing two-thirds of the more than 300 foreign investment research and development centers in Israel. And as importantly, President Biden has announced he will work with Israel in hopes of them joining the Visa Waiver Program. Strategic competition with the People's Republic of China is a defining feature of the 21st century. And the United States views close cooperation with Israel on foreign investment as critical to our security and intelligence partnership. Third, the United States values working with fellow democracies to oppose international institutional biases towards Israel. And I look forward to working with Israel to protect the freedoms of expression, association, and peaceful assembly, creating an atmosphere all voices can be heard. Equally, we must continue to oppose all efforts to isolate and delegitimize Israel. If confirmed while respecting the rights of all Americans for free speech, I will continue the tireless work of this administration to firmly reject the BDS movement and boycott laws, which unfairly single out Israel. Fourth, the Abraham Accords. Yes, the Abraham Accords are critical to region stability and prosperity. I will personally support every effort to expand cooperation among Israel and the countries of the Arab and Muslim world. And I hope to strengthen the Abraham Accords and identify opportunities to expand Israel's relationship and additional countries in the Arab and Muslim world, while we support the normalization between Israel and other countries, is not a substitute for Israel-Palestinian peace. And we seek to harness existing and future agreements to make tangible improvement for the Palestinian people with a view of preserving the vision of a negotiated two-state solution. I'm committed to doing so my part to rebuild the partnership between the Americans and the Palestinian people. The priorities listed above are only some of the key issues that face any diplomat serving in Israel. Frank and fruitful dialogues only strengthen our partnership and deepen the bonds between Americans and Israelis. Before I close, I'd like to say something that if I am fortunate to get to confirm, this will be my second time working at the State Department with some of the most talented and dedicated individuals I've ever had the honor to be with. I'd be remiss in not thanking every one of them for their service. I'm humbled and grateful to serve this country and to strengthen all aspects of the U.S.-Israeli partnership, and thank you for the opportunity to testify, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. Mr. Cohen. Mr. Cohen, if you could put your microphone on. Got it. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and members of the committee, I am proud and humbled to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to serve as the United States Ambassador to Canada. I want to thank the President for his nomination, Senators Casey and Toomey for their kind introductions, and this committee for its courtesy. I also would like to acknowledge my wife, Rhonda, who has joined us here today. She has supported me Maybe it would be more accurate to say that she has put up with me through 44 years of marriage. I deeply appreciate her remarkable partnership and commitment to my career. Canada is one of our most important allies 
and a partner for our economic prosperity and our national security. If confirmed, I pledge to devote my full efforts to strengthening our unique bilateral partnership. As President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau stated this year in their roadmap for a renewed U.S.-Canada partnership, and I quote, it is in the shared interest of the United States and Canada to revitalize and expand our historic alliance and steadfast friendship to overcome the daunting challenges of today and realize the full potential of the relationship into the future, unquote. In navigating the confirmation process, including meetings with members of this committee, I have heard many recommendations for expanding and improving the already strong relationship between Canada and the United States. Based on these discussions, if confirmed, some of my key priorities would be, first, preserving and growing the trade relationship between Canada and the United States, including as detailed in the USMCA. At nearly $1.7 billion a day, Canada is our largest trading partner and the top export market for more than 30 of our states. Second, easing border restrictions while protecting public health in both countries. As Canada and the United States share the world's longest land border with 120 ports of entry and a pre-pandemic daily rate of 400,000 people crossing over, a safe and vibrant border is important for bilateral relations, trade, tourism, and the personal and family relationships that form the bedrock of our cultures. I understand the, the impact of today's restrictions on the many communities along the border, but I also appreciate the health sensitivities and concerns that have led to the current regulations. Third, Canada and the United States cooperatively manage multiple watersheds through complex arrangements, several of which would benefit from modernization. A modernized Columbia River Treaty regime, for example, could enhance hydropower and flood risk management in both countries. I know that many members um, share this high priority. Fourth, continue to respect and fortify the trusted and valuable alliance with Canada on multiple defense relationships, including NATO and NORAD. We also must honor our commitments to make the necessary investments to meet those needs. Um, and, and, uh, and of course, our policy toward China is a key priority today. Finally, continue to advance common priorities of our countries on the global stage on issues such as combating climate change, anti-corruption, and building more diverse and inclusive societies, including for women and girls. My varied professional career has been rewarding and ultimately enhanced by leadership roles in multiple nonprofit organizations. One important theme running through my career has been the opportunities I have had to serve. I am also proud of my success in tackling big, complicated issues and in bringing people together to solve problems. I am excited by the possibility of extending my passion for service 
and applying my collaborative and solutions-based approach in the role of ambassador to Canada. If confirmed, I look forward to consulting with the members of this committee as I represent the President, the Secretary of State, and this country in Canada. It would be the ultimate honor to work alongside the 1,200 members of the United States Mission in Canada and with the Canadian government to advance our shared priorities. Thank you for your time and consideration. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Dr. Tejas. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, distinguished members of the committee, it is an honor for me to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to be the U.S. Ambassador to Costa Rica. I am grateful and humbled by the trust placed in me, and if confirmed, I really look forward to working with all of you to advance our nation's interests in the region. With your indulgence, I'd like to introduce my husband, Joe Waz, and my son, Raymond Jimenez, who are here with me today. Their unequivocal love and support mean the world to me. Also, I would like to thank my beloved parents, Raymond and Delphina Teus, who are with us in spirit. My father taught me, by example, that public service is a noble cause, to which he dedicated his entire career, having served as the first Hispanic elected mayor of a major U.S. city in 1957, and also having served as the very first Hispanic U.S. ambassador when President Kennedy appointed him to serve in Costa Rica in 1961. If confirmed, it would be my life's greatest honor to follow in his footsteps. Now, I spent several years of my youth in Costa Rica, which came to have a special place in my heart. I became very familiar with its people, its culture, and its challenges. I also was able to witness firsthand the formation of the Alliance for Progress with its great dreams of shared prosperity and democracy. My father was able to organize a summit for President Kennedy and all the Central American presidents at the U.S. Embassy in Costa Rica. I am committed to using that experience to deepen the enduring bonds between Costa Rica and the United States and thereby to further our mutual interests. The United States and Costa Rica have shared an exceptional partnership across decades, one that is based not only on mutual interests, but on shared values of democracy, of good governance, of human rights. This strong partnership is critical now more than ever. We face an unprecedented convergence of challenges in Central America, increased drug trafficking by transnational criminal organizations, economic downturn exacerbated by the pandemic, disruption in the region due to climate change, uptick in irregular migration, and also foreign influences that threaten to undermine democracy and our priorities in the region. If confirmed, I will work closely with Costa Rica to promote our shared interests throughout the region. Costa Rica has been a strong ally in migration management and a regional leader in welcoming vulnerable migrants and providing international protection for refugees and asylum seekers. If confirmed, I will certainly work to strengthen its asylum protection and temporary worker programs 
and to expand its capacity in general to deal with migration, including border protection. Very importantly, I will work with Costa Rica to address the root causes of migration in the region. Now, the US and Costa Rica collaborate closely to combat transnational crime organizations. Costa Rica is actually crucial to this shared mission, given its strategic location, which positions it as the largest transshipment hub from South America to the US for narcotics bound to our country. The good news is that in 2020, Costa Rica interdicted a record 71 metric tons of narcotics, mostly cocaine, demonstrating not only its commitment and capacity, but also, very importantly, the huge challenges it faces in the region. If confirmed, I commit to strongly support Costa Rica's counter-narcotics efforts in every way possible. Now, for decades, Costa Rica has been a champion of democracy, and recently demonstrating this by calling out the Ortega Murillo regime in Nicaragua and the Venezuelan government to return to peaceful democracy, to hold free and fair elections, to release political prisoners, to hold people accountable for corruption. Certainly, I would gladly support Costa Rica's efforts to promulgate our shared values in the region. Now, although Costa Rica has enjoyed a relatively stable economy across time, there are recent troubling signs evidenced by high unemployment, by a large public debt, and by stress in the public health system due to COVID-19 and increased migration from Nicaragua. In addition to the human toll that these pose, these vulnerabilities can be exploited by our adversaries and competitors. If confirmed, I commit to strengthening economic partnership with Costa Rica and to promote mutual prosperity. Importantly, I will support Costa Rica's efforts to combat the COVID-19 pandemic. If confirmed, I look forward to leading the embassy team in San Jose, where my highest priorities will be the protection of US citizens and of our interests. I will look forward also to seeking consultation from this committee. Thank you for the opportunity to appear for you today. I'm happy to answer your questions. Thank you very much. Uh, before we start a round of five-minute questions of members, uh, there are a series of questions we ask each nominee on behalf of the full committee, um, and they really require a simple yes or no answer. So I'd like to ask each question and get a verbal response from each of the nominees. Uh, these are questions that speak to the importance that this committee places on responsiveness by all <laughs> officials in the executive branch and that we expect and will be seeking from you. So I'd ask each of you to provide just a yes or no answer. Do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes. 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 Do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes. 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 Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. yes. And finally, do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. 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 All right, thank you. All of the nominees have responded yes um, verbally. So let me turn, I'll recognize myself uh, for a series of questions, Mr. Nides. This is one of the most important relationships we have. Uh, it is long-standing, enduring, and, and incredibly uh, bound by common values that we share uh, with the people of Israel. 
I think these are self-evident, but I just want to make sure you're committed to Israel's right to self-defense, are you not? Yes, I am. Uh, And and you're committed uh, to, um, in our debates, we have, under U.S. law, uh, there is a question of Israel's qualitative military edge. You're committed to continuing to pursue that under the law, right? Absolutely. And... uh, uh, do you support replenishment of the Iron Dome missile defense system, which has yes, saved sir. countless of Israeli and Palestinian lives as well? And yes, you spoke sir. to the Abraham Accords, which uh, we all cherish that uh, other countries have finally come together in recognizing Israel, and we hope that that can be pursued even more significantly. Uh, so uh, those are all uh, key elements, and you've covered many other things in your opening statement. So uh, let me turn to Mr. Cohen. Uh, since uh, Canadian authorities detained the CFO of Huawei in December of 2019, China's government has engaged in numerous forms of retaliation, including the imposition of tariffs and cutting imports of Canadian products. However, the most egregious case is the PRC's arbitrary uh, detention of two Canadian ci- uh, citizens, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrick, as well as the seemingly political conviction of Mr. Kovrick last month. Uh, these tactics by China require the international community to respond with a united purpose. I've spoken about this quite a bit. Uh, what steps will you take to deepen coordination with our Canadian allies and ensure that our two countries formulate a joint response to the challenges posed by China's coercive diplomacy? Well, Mr. Chairman, I think the good news is that we start from a proposition, as you observed in your opening comments, where uh, Canada and the United States share a commitment to democratic values, and I think they share an abhorrence of much of the behavior of the People's Republic of China. I think the United States has joined and joined Canada in the condemnation of the treatment of the two Michaels. Um, I, I think the I think Canada almost seems to prefer working in multilateral ways um, in its foreign affairs, which sometimes may make it appear that they are less outspoken than you might otherwise think. In the case of the two Michaels and arbitrary detention, they've been very outspoken, and the United States has been very supportive. I think um, we are all waiting for Canada to release Uh, its framework for its overall China policy. And I think as ambassador, if I'm confirmed, it's an appropriate role to be engaged in discussions and make sure that Canada's policies reflect its words um, in terms of the treatment of, of, uh, of China and that we do improve the collaboration and coordination between our two countries in taking on the existential threat that is China politically, economically, diplomatically, um, et cetera. Thank you. Uh, The Congress as a whole, which is a a rarity these days, but uh, in a bipartisan way, put out legislation, including legislation from this committee that became part of the overarching legislation on China, recognizing China as our most significant geostrategic challenge in the world. So our allies are going to be incredibly important with us. You and I had an opportunity to speak yesterday. I appreciated you coming by to the office. I hope also uh, upon your confirmation you can work with our Canadian partners, uh, who we have a great deal of respect for. We honor the service that they have 
and the sacrifices that they've made alongside with us in Afghanistan and other places uh, as a NATO ally. But uh, I would hope that they would be more forthcoming on democracy and human rights issues in the hemisphere. Uh, they're a key hemispheric partner. Uh, they sit in the OAS with us. Uh, and yet I get disappointed at times when, for example, the Canadians uh, don't uh, join us, uh, for example, on human rights and democracy in Cuba. Uh, it, it, it is pretty amazing to me. I understand Canadians have economic interests in Cuba, but those should not overcome uh, the human rights and democracy issues. So it's something I hope you will work on uh, upon your confirmation. Dr. Tejas, uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, Costa Rica, some of the challenges that it has now in COVID and um, uh, some of the economic uh, impacts on it. How do you think we can work together? What would be some of your top priorities uh, to work with uh, Costa Rica to help it meet these present challenges so it can continue to be uh, what it has been on both refugees, democracy, uh, uh, a stalwart in the hemisphere? Uh, Mr. Chairman, thank you for your question. Uh, very timely and, and relevant at this point. And, and certainly, as, as you mentioned, um, COVID-19 has had a significant impact on uh, the economic circumstance in Costa Rica as it has throughout the region and also globally. Um, my, one of the things that I would hope to do is to assist the government in addressing the issues right now which are currently plaguing it, including high unemployment, also issues related to increasing public debt, and also the strain that COVID-19 has placed on its uh, health system. And I would also um, suggest that in addition to dealing with these shorter term issues that may require some financial assistance, that we look to supporting Costa Rica, to Costa Rica and its kind of long-term economic resilience. And that would certainly mean to kind of strengthen our economic partnership with Costa Rica through trade and investment. I would certainly uh, reach out very uh, proactively to American businesses to consider investing in Costa Rica, which is a very uh, favorable business climate. Um, additionally, I think that in terms of the longer term uh, resilience issues, um, it'll be uh, important uh, for Costa Rica to continue down the path that's begun already through its extension to the, uh, to the Organization of Economic uh, Development and Cooperation which has certainly kind of uh, suggested certain reforms, um, economic and governmental reforms, which they are embarking on. So I believe that we also need to uh, get the assistance of multinational organizations as well as international financial institutions to assist with long-term um, recovery. Uh, in terms of your question about refugees, uh, as you know, as I mentioned, Costa Rica has been an incredible partner a regional leader in terms of providing uh, protection for refugees and asylum seekers. And just very recently, uh, it actually um, has provided um, a home, has welcomed refugees from Nicaragua since nine, in the last three years, probably about 100,000, and from Venezuela, close to 40,000 uh, in the last, in the just very recent terms. So I believe, um, and, and even though they are very willing and, and welcoming, it is certainly strained to some extent its public health system and its infrastructure. So I think that uh, we need to look at some additional humanitarian assistance to 
to Costa Rica, and also to figure out how we can expand its capacity to receive migrants uh, by uh, supporting its temporary worker programs, its asylum protection um, uh, uh, programs also. Um, so um, again, I um, look forward, if confirmed, uh, to working with the government of Costa Rica to address these issues. Thank you. Senator Rich. Well, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And um, let, me, uh, let me start uh, with uh, Mr. Nye's. First of all, thank you for your enthusiastic condemnation of the uh, despicable and anti-Semitic uh, boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. I really appreciate your enthusiasm uh, for that position, which I share and many others uh, uh, share. Uh, we have another member on the next panel who I think has less enthusiasm for that, but we're going to test that when we get there. I also want to acknowledge your enthusiastic support for the Abraham Accords. That's, that's the most enthusiasm I've heard from anyone from this administration regarding the uh, Abraham Accords, even though almost everyone agrees that this was one of the most significant steps that's happened in the, in the Middle East in, in decades. So I appreciate that, and, and I also appreciate your uh, personal commitments uh, to expand the Abraham Accords where possible. Uh, that is a game changer in that region. Uh, certainly the, uh, the more relations that the countries have with each other in the region is good for them and it's good for the world. So uh, uh, thank you for that. Um, the, uh, the Palestinian uh, issue that I'm most concerned with is the pay for slave program, which I assume you're familiar with. And uh, I'd ask your thoughts on that, please. Uh, Senator, um, thank you very much, and uh, I share your concern about uh, uh, this abhorrent behavior uh, as it relates to the paper slay. Obviously, the legislation was passed in the Taylor Force Act, which obviously is we're quite focused on, and if I am uh, fortunate enough to get confirmed, I have every intention of working uh, with the Palestinians to try to get uh, progress on this, but I, I don't think there's anyone in this administration that would disagree with you about this, what's happened there, and we need to work to get it resolved. I, I appreciate that. Uh, I, I was one of the uh, uh, primary sponsors on Taylor Force. I'd hope that it had been more successful than it's been, uh, but if it is followed closely, it certainly makes uh, inroads in that, and I... Uh, along with others, are, are criticized sometimes because we are tough on the uh, Palestinians, and particularly when you're talking about money flowing for them to them because of the corruption and the way that the, uh, uh, that the terrorists are, have a way of siphoning money from our money that's going there to help uh, uh, people in the country. So uh, I think this is something that really uh, deserves uh, our continued attention, and uh, I'm certainly going to be uh, tough, and I think everybody's going to be tough on this uh, pay-for-slay program, and I hope uh, you'll enthusiastically join us uh, as we continue that battle. Uh, thank you. Turning uh, to Mr. Cohen, uh, th thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me uh, on uh, the issues with Canada. I think uh, I certainly wish we had the same relationship with all countries. Uh, uh, like the chairman, I'm not completely uh, satisfied with their view on everything, but uh, that's not unusual. There's virtually no country that we're in complete uh, concurrence with. Two of the real important issues for me are the uh, uh, Columbia River Treaty. It's important to all of us uh, uh, on a bipartisan basis who serve uh, from the Pacific uh, Northwest. 
uh, Senator Cantrell and I have been the uh, two leading uh, people on that uh, on the uh, negotiations that are going on. Uh, she's a, uh, a very good partner uh, in that regard. Uh, we're, we're we're in complete uh, agreement on where we need to go with this. Uh, we talked about the about the heavy lift that it is, and uh, I know you're ready for that challenge, and uh, we we expect to. Uh, uh, continue that as it's going, and we look for you, forward to your help in that regard. On the second issue, uh, and that is the opening of the northern border, uh, the, the uh, uh, we share, uh, my state shares a uh, uh, a border with Canada, and we're very painfully and personally aware of the cost of this closing. So uh, I appreciate your commitment to work on uh, getting that open as as quickly as we we can. Uh, for Ms. Tellis, uh, the the uh, Costa Ricans uh, switched their diplomatic relations from Taiwan to the PRC in 2007, and ever since then we've seen a slow creep of Chinese influence in that country. Could I have your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Uh, thank you for your question, Ranking Member Rich. Uh, it is something of great concern, quite frankly. Um, uh, China has sought for some years now to expand its sphere of influence politically and, and economically. And it would love nothing better than to have a beachhead in Costa Rica. And um, in recent years, in the last few years or so, these efforts have become much more aggressive. Uh, whether it is through promises of investment and trade or public diplomacy, they built them some time ago, as you know, a stadium and a police academy. But there are more recent offers of a similar nature. Um, additionally, they attempted vaccine diplomacy, it didn't work at this point. And um, they are now very interested, uh, very aggressively actually pushing, trying to further infiltrate the Costa Rican telecommunications system through uh, the sale at very good terms of, of their um, equipment uh, for cellular phones. Uh, so I would say that I think the biggest, I think, uh, or the most important strategy here, uh, would be really to strengthen our economic relationship with Costa Rica in terms of trade and foreign direct investment. And as I mentioned, I really want to urge the American companies to, to really invest uh, in Costa Rica. Um, that, I think, will be probably one of the biggest leverages that we will have over time. Right now, we are their top trading partner and the largest contributor to foreign direct investment. I would want to preserve that and expand that. Um, but also very important, I think um, it would be important, certainly, to um, urge the Costa Ricans to be mindful of, um, of our shared values of democracy and human rights, and also to um, encourage them when entering into contracts and other agreements to prioritize trusted partners and uh, entities that will not compromise their long-term security. But I am confident that uh, in working with Costa Rica, it's been a great partner over many years, that we can achieve these goals. Thank you. I appreciate that clear-eyed view. The, your your uh, reference to the uh, relatively small amount of money that, uh, that China spends in these countries uh, gets them a tremendous leverage at times, whether it's here, whether it's in the small Pacific nations. Uh, we've seen that over and over again. Appreciate your attention to that, and we'll all be watching it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, I understand Senator Cardin is with us virtually. 
Uh, thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me start by thanking all of our nominees for their willingness uh, to serve our country. We thank you. We thank your families. These are critically important positions for the United States, and we thank you for being willing to step up uh, in this responsibility. Mr. Nides, uh, let me start with you. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity that we had to, to chat. Uh, I, I know your record over many, many uh, years, and uh, I, I know your, your strong support for the importance of the U.S.-Israel relations. Uh, we've already covered the issue about Israel's right to defend itself. We've already covered the um, the partnership with the United States under a memorandum of understanding and the replenishment of the Iron Dome funds. And we've covered also the, the dangerous efforts that have made to isolate Israel through the BDS movement. I want to talk on a positive note. Uh, we recognize that the uh, need for peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis, uh, that's in the interest of both Palestinians, Israelis, and the United States and the region for security. There have been many opportunities in the past where we came close, but we were not able to complete uh, the uh, negotiations. It seems to me that we have two things at this moment that give signs of encouragement. We've already talked about one, the Abraham Accords, with countries normalizing their relations with Israel, and as you point out, additional countries that are uh, uh, candidates uh, for the Abraham Accords. And we also have a broad coalition government in Israel right now that gives us maybe the political opportunity within Israel to be more aggressive on peace. Uh, we recognize the challenges among the Palestinians and their leadership, but could you just share with us uh, your thoughts as to whether this might be the right time to pursue uh, peace between the Palestinians and Israelis? Um, uh, Senator Cardin, thank you uh, for your question. Um, you know, I think as uh, President Biden um, said, uh, I think yesterday at the UN, um, the, there is a view that a two-state solution clearly is a goal to try to attempt to achieve. I don't think any one of us believes that that is achievable uh, in the next uh, couple weeks. Uh, but I do believe that we need as, uh, as a government to continue to create the pathway to achieve that. And I think we're doing that through a variety of ways. One talking about the importance of a two-state solution. Number two, uh, adding to the assistance to the Palestinian people. Uh, I think we've, uh, there's a $400 million of assistance for the Palestinian people through a variety of programs to send a strong message to the Palestinian people and to encourage both the Palestinians and the Israelis not to take unilateral action that will make the path towards a two-state solution impossible. Listen, I, I think, uh, I obviously believe that the uh, Prime Minister Bennett's visit here was a successful one. I think the relation between uh, uh, the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister with uh, the Biden administration is strong. Um, I hope that those, uh, those, that relationship will continue to grow as we, and hopefully when I have the opportunity potentially to be confirmed, uh, I will have reach out to the Palestinians uh, the Palestinian people to, to continue to send the message that we not only care, we believe in the importance of the same uh, freedom and security and prosperity that the Israelis uh, want to achieve. So, um, Senator, I'm, um, I'm a generally an optimist. You wouldn't take these jobs if you were not. Um, I'm also uh, a realist, uh, but I hope we can are beginning the process to, to create the environment for that to happen. 
thank you for that response. Mr. Cohn, let me, let me just ask quickly a, a question in regards to U.S.-Canadian relations. We know it's our closest ally from the point of view of regional, uh, great relationship between our two countries. But I think we have to recognize that there is damage that's been done. Uh, the Canadian Globe and Mail reported on July 22nd that, and I quote, the political discord in the United States remains dangerously deep. Uh, uh, and although Canada-U.S. relations are improving now that Donald Trump is no longer president, it will be a long time before things return to normal, if they ever do. Now, I, I don't want to rehash what happened over the past four years, but I do want to just emphasize the fact, and we talk to Canadians all the time, there, there's been damage done in our relationship. What is your strategy in order to strengthen the ties uh, as far as the feelings among the people in Canada and the United States towards each other? Senator, uh, I look, I agree with the premise of your question quite strongly. And I think that it plays to one of my strengths over the course of my career. So I'm going to start with the simplest thing. I'm going to show up. Um, I'm going to be there. Um, I'm going to reach out. I mean, one of the outcomes of the election on Monday is there going to be a number of new cabinet ministers. And I, you know, I want to make sure that I try to create a relationship and a communication channel with the government and make it clear that I'm there to listen. I'm there to obviously represent the United States interests, but I'm there to be communicative and two ways communicative, to communicate our desires and our positions, for example, um, on issues like China, as the, as the chairman raised. But I'm also there to listen to Canadian concerns and to bring them back um, and to make sure that I create a reality that the United States cares about Canada as a strong ally, cares about what they think, and wants to be a true partner in trade, in diplomacy, in defense, um, in energy, in climate change, um, in all of the issues that we share values on and that we work closely together. Thank, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Uh, the next available member is Senator Coons. Um, thank you, Chairman Menendez. Uh, and thank you to all three uh, of our nominees today. Thank you for your uh, willingness to continue to support our nation and to serve overseas and for your families who are with you today. Um, it is um, my honor to uh, work with you and to question you today. And I intend to support uh, your confirmation before the Senate of the United States um, and to Welcome and express my appreciation. Uh, Max, to you. Uh, Rhonda, it's great to see you again. Uh, to Joe and to Raymond. Um, all of us are able to sustain our careers in service because of the support of our families. So um, thank you for that. If I might, uh, Mr. Nides, um, I join many others in saying the Abraham Accords enjoy bipartisan support. I look forward to partnering with you and figuring out how we can more fully implement them. Um, as the chairman of the State and Foreign Operations Subcommittee, I'm committed to working with you on ensuring Israel's security and the continued strengthening of that long, deep, and important partnership. I want to ask you about a specific program that was funded, um, the Nita Lowy Middle East Partnership for Peace Act. It has $250 million over five years to support venture capital investment in the West Bank and people-to-people -people programs. Are you familiar with this? How do you think it might contribute uh, to the very difficult work uh, of developing an environment for uh, partnership and for peace? Um, thank you very much, Senator, for the question. Yes, I'm quite um, 
uh, knowledgeable about this, and I will I congratulate uh, the the Congress for doing this program in a bipartisan way with your leadership and. Um, many of the Republicans who uh, signed on for this legislation. Um, I happen to have gone up to see um, former Congresswoman Lowy in Westchester a few weeks ago to talk to her specifically about the program. Uh, the program, as you know, is a $250 million uh, program over a five-year period of time that marries both the DFC and the USAID to do exactly what needs to be done, which is not only people-to-people, um, uh, growth, but more importantly, trying to use these monies to improve both the Palestinian-Israeli uh, relationships. Um, uh, Congresswoman Lowy, uh, someone who I've known for a long time, it was an honor for her clearly, but shows the importance of her commitment to the U.S.-Israel-Palestinian uh, two-state solution idea uh, and, and, and for us to focus on that. So I'm quite familiar with it. I've already had um, some preliminary now, you know, uh, discussions with folks about it as I got briefed up on it. But I think it's got an enormous amount of potential, and I look forward to working with you as we implement programs uh, if I'm fortunate enough to get confirmed. Thank you, Tom. Mr. Cohen, it's great to see you before us and to uh, be with you again, and I think you'll serve as an excellent ambassador to, to address some of the issues uh, Senator Cardin just raised. Um, Senator Udall and I actually were part of a bipartisan delegation that went to Latvia a number of years ago uh, where we visited... Um, with a Canadian battalion that was helping lead NATO security presence in that Baltic country. Just one of many reminders of the ways in which Canada is not just a critical trade partner, not just a critical values partner, but is a real security partner. Um, how will you work with Canada to advance uh, our shared security goals um, through NATO, through NORAD, um, through their vital work in peacekeeping and, and other uh, partnerships that are essential to our security? Well, again, I think I will have the advantage of starting with a foundation of a long-term <clears throat> friendship and partnership. Uh, there's no, there'll be, there isn't any resistance to the importance of Canada and the United States working together on defense arrangements, including the ones that you have identified. Um, but as the chairman pointed out in, in one of his questions, you know, there's, there's, there's always room for improvement. Let me put it that way. So when I look at the side of our relationships um, about benefit sharing and about making sure that we are all investing appropriately in these defense partnerships, um, in, in NORAD, um, Canada has not appropriated the sum of money that is necessary to fund the modernization and improvement of NORAD that we've agreed to conceptually. And although the percentage of the Canadian defense budget um, is creeping upwards. Um, it is only at about one and a half percent. And it is projected to drop to as low as one percent um, over, over the next decade or so. So I think that's an opportunity for dialogue. It's an opportunity for conversation. It's an opportunity to say if we really believe in the importance of NATO, if we really believe in the importance of NORAD, we have, to, we have to invest appropriately to make sure that we can deliver on the defense benefits to both of our countries and to the free world. Thank you. Uh, and if I might, uh, Dr. Tellis, just uh, a question to follow up on your previous exchange uh, about foreign direct investment. I was very encouraged to see uh, Intel's announcement in July that they'll invest $600 million in a long-idled microchip plant, uh, semiconductor chip plant in Costa Rica. 
Um, how can partners like Costa Rica help partner with us to support the nearshoring uh, of critical technologies as we look to develop supply chains that are more robust and independent? <coughs> Um, that's an excellent question, uh, Senator. And I do think that, that Costa Rica could play a very important role in partnering with us uh, in this respect. Um, as you know, they have a relatively well-educated, well-trained well workforce. Um, it, they also offer a very uh, positive um, business environment, um, like an open economy, um, relatively low levels of corruption and such. And so, um, Given that they have already, as you know, one of their main exports is medical equipment, but aside from that, they have the capacity to engage in, in broader um, production. And, and I do believe that, um, that we could certainly encourage uh, this particular partnership even further. Thank you. And uh, I look forward to working with you to support and strengthen the ability of the Costa Rican people uh, to both welcome uh, refugees uh, and to be uh, a wonderful development and security partner with the United States. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, I understand that Senator Young is with us virtually. Yes, yes Chairman. Uh, yes, Chairman. Thank you, sir. Uh, Mr. Knights, Prime Minister Natalie Benefit, uh, Bennett rather, has, has made it clear that uh, his government opposes the Biden administration's efforts to revive the Iran deal and that he would ensure Israel has the ability to go it alone in securing itself from Iranian terror. Uh, I don't necessarily doubt uh, your commitment to the U.S.-Israel relationship, especially having visited with you, sir, uh, but this administration seems intent on pursuing certain policies that I believe will only undermine it. Mr. Knights, how can an administration that claims to be unequivocal about Israel's security continue to press, press for revival of a deal with Iran that Israel's own government opposes due to the security risks that it presents? Um, Senator, thank you uh, for the question. As you and I um, discussed in your office, I, um, I may make two points. One is, as you know, um, uh, the president has been quite clear that he uh, is attempting to use uh, diplomacy to resolve the Iran um, nuclear uh, situation. Uh, he's also made it clear, as Secretary Blinken has, that he will not stand by to allow the Iranians to obtain uh, a nuclear weapon. Um, obviously, I am not a party, in, since I have not been confirmed to the level of negotiations, but those are the binding facts of this uh, relationship and the position of this administration. Well, if you believe the JCPOA, sir, does enhance Israel's security, let's just uh, take that as a premise because um, uh, you, you'd almost have to in, in, in order to uh, reconcile uh, the commitment to U.S.-Israel uh, relationship and, and uh, their intent on making sure that Israel can defend itself. Uh, with this JCPOA negotiation. So let's, let's, let's just assume that JCPOA enhances Israel's security. How do you square that with Israel's opposition to the agreement and, and Prime Minister's commitment to do whatever is necessary uh, to secure the people of Israel? Um, again, Senator, I think, Mark, again, I'm not obviously currently involved in the discussions and negotiations, obviously, 
uh, with uh, Israel's or the conversations that are going on in Vienna. I will only say that I think the president has been quite clear, both in his statements yesterday at the UN and the public statements that he and the Secretary of State have said, is obviously they want to, if possible, use diplomacy to resolve the situation. And I think um, as this process plays out, and if I'm fortunate enough to be uh, confirmed, obviously I'll be more informed about the details of that. Uh, but that is the, certainly the policy of the administration. And I do believe that there are ongoing communications between uh, the Israeli government uh, and the American government as it relates to whatever discussions are going on around the diplomatic channel and non-diplomatic channel through the, uh, through the conversations among the parties. Uh, thank you, Mr. Nice. Mr. Cohen, uh, the United States and Canada are close trade partners, especially evident in the symbiotic relationship between my state of Indiana and the Canadians. As a leader in the automotive industry, Indiana exports over $7 billion in motor vehicles and motor vehicle parts to Canada. Canada is also Indiana's largest export destination, followed by Mexico, according to 2019 statistics. It's safe to say that we rely on access to partners in Canada in order to export products all across the globe and keep our industries humming. And that access was solidified by the landmark USMCA agreement. As ambassador, Mr. Cohen, how will you work to mitigate supply chain disruptions that business uh, continuously faces as they emerge from the pandemic? And do you see value in diverting supply chains out of China and closer to U.S. soil? So good morning, Senator. Good to see you. And uh, I, th I, think the, I think the answer I think the problem you've put your finger on is something I alluded to in my opening statement, which is the pandemic has clearly been disruptive to supply chains and the um, limitations on travel have complicated things. I think in the automotive world, by the way, um, you know, we are, we are working through the processes of, of, of USMCA um, to try and deal with some of the automobile industry issues that were, frankly, were one of the reasons for USMCA being passed. Um, if, I, if I am confirmed, though, I think this is another case where my role as ambassador um, is to help encourage these types of discussions. And obviously, anytime we can divert supply chains to um, to our hemisphere, as opposed to China, is an economic benefit to the hemisphere and to the United States. <clears throat> and to the extent that we can accomplish that, I think that is good policy for the United States and for Canada. Thank, Thank you. I'm out of time. Uh, I appreciate uh, uh, your desire to serve, all of you. Thank you, Senator Young. Uh, Mr. Nides, uh, in my view, we have a moral obligation to help the Palestinians that are suffering, and I understand that there are those who don't share that view, but could you talk about why U.S. humanitarian assistance to the Palestinians is not just morally right, but good for us and for the Israelis and serves the long-term interests of a two-state solution? Uh, Senator, uh, thank you very much, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, the the money is going to... Uh, the Palestinians are going to the Palestinian people. 
and making life better for the Palestinian people has been a bipartisan issue. It hasn't just been a democratic issue. For many years, the, the, this uh, committee and the appropriators have uh, appropriated money for the Palestinian people uh, from everything from water to education to health care. I think it makes uh, the, the, our national security interests, because that's who we are as a country, I think it helps the Israelis by keeping things calm uh, in not only in the West Bank, which I think is important for the security, and I think it's important for us if we believe ultimately that the solution is a two-state solution. It provides them an opportunity and a guide path for that. So I am in, in complete concurrence that I think it's important with all the caveats that we all understand and all the rules in which are in place, but giving assistance to the Palestinian people, not to the Palestinian Authority, but to the Palestinian people is in our national security best interest. And I think and I believe that also in Israeli's national security interest as well. Can you flesh out that last part for us? Uh, can you talk about the work that the U.S. government and the NGO community does to make sure that our assistance uh, goes to support the needs of the Palestinian people and what guardrails we will have in place to ensure that the U.S. funding doesn't get diverted from a humanitarian mission? Uh, sir, I, I completely, you know, I think we're, we're using our trusted partners, the auditing that goes on through USAID and other, our other development partners, is focused on that. We're very aware and very focused on the Taylor Force Act. Those monies will be to the Palestinian people. Um, these are for programs that help uh, healthcare, uh, education, uh, water purification, a variety of programs. And I believe, not to speak for my, uh, if I'm fortunate enough to get confirmed to speak for the USAID, but I know they are very much focused on how those monies are being spent and all the guardrails that are put up in conjunction with the laws and regulations that are in place. I'll submit this question for the record because I want to get to Mr. Cohen, but I, I do want to ask you about the potential for uh, clean energy partnerships between the United States and, and Israel. Uh, uh, Mr. Cohen, the Canadian government passed a law this summer uh, ratifying its commitment uh, to clean energy by the year 2050. Um, it still has a lot of work to do. Everybody has a lot of work to do to flesh out its plan and uh, put funding behind it. But we do need this kind of ambition and commitment from our allies if we're going to combat uh, the climate crisis. Can you talk about how we can make climate action more of a main part of our bilateral relationship with Canada? Good morning, Senator. Good to see you. And um, I, think, again, I think the premise of your question provides some of the answer. When we deal with Canada, we are dealing with a, with a friend that shares our values, and that includes around climate issues. So you have, the, you have the legislation. You also have Prime Minister Trudeau's federal carbon pricing, which was layered on top of that legislation and which was just upheld by the Canadian Supreme Court. So you've got real action being taken by Canada. I think the best ways to align um, are, we're already seeing, is better coordination and continued communication. We've got two current examples of that. One is the roadmap that I referenced in my opening statement, which identifies climate and fighting climate change as one of the priority, one of the priorities of Canada and the United States working together. That is a statement from the highest levels of both governments, the president and the prime minister. And the second thing I'd point to is the um, is the uh, recent convening that climate 
um, that the Climate Secretary Kerry um, had with Canada and promised a periodic high-level convening around climate change-related issues to keep the two countries aligned and to keep this issue front of mind. So those, I mean, I think that both is, are consistent with my sense that we need coordination, communication at the highest levels of our governments. Thank you very much, and thanks to all of you for your willingness to serve. Uh, Senator Barrasso. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Nice, congratulations on your nomination. I just had a chance to talk with Senator Klobuchar, who gave you such a nice introduction, and uh, it, congratulations. I want to talk about Iron Dome. The, uh, the U.S.-Israel relationship has long been the cornerstone of America's strategy in the Middle East. Israel constantly faces terrorist attacks. We've seen it again recently. Threats, including the rocket attacks by Hamas in Gaza, attacks from Iranian-backed groups in Lebanon and Syria. Iron Dome is the first line of defense for Israel. Uh, in May, Israel faced over 4,000 rockets and attacks by the Iranian-backed terrorist group Hamas. The Iron Dome system intercepted more than 90% in terms of being effective in intercepting the rockets threatening civilians and critical infrastructure, save lives. Yet what we just saw is the House Democrats removed funding for the Iron Dome that had been included in their continuing resolution funding bill. This just happened within the last day. Do you support funding to replenish the Iron Dome defense system? Uh, absolutely. And how important is continued U.S.-Israel cooperation on the Iron Dome and other cooperative defense programs? Very. Uh, in terms of Jerusalem, uh, is Jerusalem the capital of Israel? Yes. Uh, do you believe it should be the permanent place of the U.S. Embassy in Israel? Yes. Okay. Uh, the, the Golan Heights. In 2019, the United States formally recognized Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. You view the Golan Heights as part of Israel? We support the current position vis-a-vis -vis the threats that we have in Syria with Assad, and it's a strategically very important strategic position for the Israelis. Um, in, uh, in 2018, Congress passed into law the, the Taylor Force Act. Uh, it prohibits U.S. economic assistance that directly benefits the Palestinian Authority, uh, as long as the Palestinian Authority continues to pay financial rewards for terrorism. I know Senator Risch talked about the importance of this issue a little earlier in this, in this hearing. Does the Palestinian Authority continue to subsidize and pay financial reward to terrorists? I believe they have not stopped these payments. So if confirmed, are you fully committed to stopping the terror incentive payments by the Palestinian Authority? If I'm confirmed, absolutely will work to, to, to achieve that goal. Um, there's a new Palestinian Authority law that effectively nationalized all what were once independent civil society groups. Th these groups need to now submit plans and budgets to the Palestinian Authority to review their conformity with the, quote, work plan of the relevant ministry. The law also gives the, the Palestinian Authority power to dissolve any organization and then seize or transfer its assets to a similar Palestinian association or institution. You know, you, you look at that, the way that they're going to do this, it, you know, looking at this and saying, would you support the United States providing taxpayer resources to these organizations if they can be seized by the, the resource can be seized by the Palestinian Authority, which the United States is legally prohibited from funding directly? Uh, Senator, I'm not 
sorry, I'm not totally aware of exactly the program you're speaking of, but clearly the uh, Taylor Force Act is a law of the land, and obviously we'll abide by any laws, obviously, on the books. Um, on that particular one, I'm not particularly aware of that piece of, or that, that uh, Palestinian uh, legislation or whatever law that may be in place, but I'll certainly look into it. I appreciate your willingness to, to look into it. You know, Israel continues to face direct threats from Iran and its terrorist proxies. The administration's budget request includes $3.8 billion in U.S. security assistance to Israel. President Biden has clearly stated, I'm not going to place conditions for the security assistance given the serious threats that Israel is facing, and this would be, I think, irresponsible. So do you oppose placing conditions on U.S. security assistance to Israel? Yes, sir. And how would reducing or conditioning security assistance to Israel uh, hurt Israel's ability to defend itself from threats? Uh, the, the reality is the administration does not support conditionality on the assistance. Uh, and as you know, we're at a $38 billion 10-year MOU. Uh, and the position of the administration is we do not support conditionality. So last week marked the one-year anniversary of the, of the Abraham Accords. Uh, the historic diplomatic U.S. brokered agreements between Israel and several of the uh, Arab neighbors. The, the Trump administration helped negotiate several historic developments between Israel, its regional Arab neighbors, uh, the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan. They joined Egypt and Jordan in establishing the relationships diplomatically with Israel. These agreements have created a path to peace through recognition and engagement rather than isolation and boycotts of Israel. Uh, Israel foreign minister recently said the Abraham Accord uh, club is open to new members as well. Secretary Blinken pledged the administration will continue to build on the successful efforts of the last administration to keep normalization marching forward. As the ambassador, what role would you play in fostering peace with Israel and the Arab world? Well, Senator, as I said in my opening statement, I'm quite focused on the Abraham Accords. I think they are good for Israel. If my North Star is a democratic Jewish state, I think this makes it stronger. Obviously, my hope is that if we uh, operationalize the current um, Abraham Accords countries and then expand it, it will also benefit the Palestinians as well. I think, obviously, it's something that is good for Israel. It's certainly good for the United States' national security interests. And we'd love to, at the time, make sure it's also good for the Palestinians as well. But I will work closely in the implementation, work to strive to get new additional countries uh, into the Abraham Accords, and I look forward to working with on that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and congratulations to the witnesses. What a great panel. I am fortunate to have two friends on this panel, Tom Nides and David Cohen. And Dr. Tejas White, we don't know each other enough for me to call you a friend. Your husband, Joe, is a friend. I'm an admirer of yours, but a friend of your husband. So what a good panel. I'm really excited to be with you. I have two questions. Sometimes I ask questions to make a point. Uh, but these are questions because they're things I'm puzzled about. One is for you, uh, Mr. Nides, and one is for you, Dr. Tess. Um, Mr. Nides, your test opening testimony talks about longtime U.S. policy, dating back to President Truman supporting two-state, peaceful Israel, peaceful Palestine, living side by side. And that's always been my thought about the best outcome there. But um, I will say, as I, as I visit Israel, and I've been to Israel and Palestine now probably more than any other country in the world, I don't consider myself an expert, but I've been a lot, I look for evidence that Israeli or Palestinian leadership want a two-state solution. And, I ha and I'm, I'm not sure I see it. I, I don't necessarily see it in the current government of Israel that they really want a two-state solution. Um, and when I'm on talking to Palestinian leadership, they, they sort of suggest that they want it, but I don't see a capacity to, uh, to carry it out. And when I talk to just 
just everyday people, I often hear two state, one state, that's for politicians. On the Palestinian side, what I often hear is we just want equal rights, you know, to water, to voting, equal rights. So I, I, I detect a troubling lack of interest in a two-state solution in Israel and Palestine. And it makes me wonder whether the U.S. can have a policy for a nation that it doesn't necessarily have for itself. So my question to you is, what evidence is there right now that Israeli or Palestinian leadership want a two-state solution? Uh, Senator, it's, um, it's a great question, um, obviously. Um, we can only control what we can control. And I, in, our, in our view, this is the United States' position and this administration's position is to set the table for to keeping the parties not doing unilateral action that makes that impossible to achieve. And we do that by a variety of things. Assistance to the Palestinians, clear support to Israel for their own defense, the MOU, providing um, opportunities uh, on the Abraham Accords, uh, making sure that we articulate to the Palestinians that we care about their freedom and their prosperity and their security. So we, as the United States, can only set the table for potentially giving us the opportunity to achieve it at some point, as the President has articulated. So I can't obviously speak for the Israelis or obviously the Palestinians, but hopefully if I've confirmed, I can speak for the United States, and we will at least not to exasperate and a divide, but encourage uh, the parties coming together. I, I think that's about as good an answer as anyone could give, because I'm, I'm just not sure there is a lot of evidence out there right now. We should do what we can to hopefully create opportunities for progress, but um, it really troubles me. And we're in the midst of a painful analysis right now of the last chapter of U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan. And one of the questions we're having to ask ourselves is, did we want something a set of things for Afghanistan that the Afghan leaders didn't want for themselves. And, and we have to you know, be humble in asking that question and getting to the bottom of it. Um, Dr. Tass, here is my question for you. I lived in Honduras for a while. And when I lived in Honduras in 1980 and 81, Costa Rica was sort of a real island of stability and a very tough, Honduras was a military dictatorship. There was a contra war going on against the government of Nicaragua, Guatemala, and El Salvador in the midst of brutal civil wars. Why hasn't Costa Rica's success had a little positive infection, um, you know, uh, throughout the Americas? It, 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 it's always puzzled me that they have been able, and thank God, they have been able to be. They've got challenges, too, but an island of stability. But that was 40 years ago that I was in Central America. And Honduras is in a military dictatorship now, but it's equally troubled, maybe more so, more violent and killing of journalists and, and uh, you know, uh, activists. So what is it about Costa Rica that enables it to be successful, but why hasn't that model been attractive to its neighbors? Mm -hmm. um, thank you for your question, Senator, and I also I appreciate your interest in Central America, knowing that you uh, lived there for a bit and were involved in humanitarian efforts. Um, so it's a very good question. Um, it is a fact that Costa Rica has really enjoyed uh, a stable democracy and a relatively prosperous economy over the years. Um, and it could be a part of its roots go back to 1949 when after um, almost a year of civil strife, uh, a constitution was adopted um, that um, really emphasized uh, democracy, but also importantly, I think, took certain actions to invest in the people of Costa Rica. They eliminated their army 
and they put most of their resources uh, into uh, public health and into education. And I think that that went a long way, I think, towards creating, helping to create a middle class, helping to, um, to uh, stabilize uh, its uh, long-term interests. Now, why has that not been exported successfully to other countries? That's a very good question. Um, if you look at some of the history of Central America, some of that instability has been related to military actions which have engaged in coups and, and also repression of the people. And so that is just one you know, simple answer. But I do hope that, that Costa Rica increasingly, through its leadership of the Central American region and its recent presidency, actually, of the Central American integration system, will continue to promulgate our shared values of democracy and human rights, which are uh, very necessary right now in Central America. I'm well over my time, but I really appreciate um, both of you for offering uh, good insights into two very tough questions. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I yield back. Senator Haggerty. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And to each of you, I want to congratulate you on your nominations. It's a tremendous honor to be nominated to represent your nation in this way, and I wish you the best as you move through the hearings process. Um, I'd like to start with an area that's of particular uh, strategic concern, although all of your countries are terribly important, the countries that you're, you're hoping to represent the United States to, but that's Israel. And Mr. Nines, I wanted to uh, reach out to you. Earlier this year, um, on a 97 to 3 vote, an amendment that I co-authored with Senator Jim Munhoff was passed to ensure that Jerusalem continues to be recognized by the United States as the capital of uh, Israel. That's pursuant to the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995. The Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995 codified US policy, first ensuring that Jerusalem would be the capital of Israel and that Jerusalem should remain an undivided city. Mr. Nides is nominated to be our ambassador to Israel. Do you support the Jerusalem Act of 1995? And in particular, do you agree that Jerusalem should continue to be recognized as the capital of the state of Israel by the United States, that Jerusalem should remain an undivided city, and that the United States should maintain its embassy to Israel in Jerusalem? Uh, Senator, thank you for your question, and um, the answer is yes. Um, uh, the capital of uh, Israel is Jerusalem. The embassy is in Jerusalem. I, if I am confirmed, I will be living in Jerusalem. Uh, obviously, that is uh, something that I will be looking forward to. Uh, obviously, at a certain point, if there is a negotiation between the Palestinians and, and the Israelis as it relates to a final status, Long from now, that will be up to the parties. But from the United States' perspective, the Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Well, with respect to the Palestinian negotiations, I'd like to probe further on that. Um, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett recently visited here, uh, met with our president. President Biden told him, uh, told Prime Minister Bennett, that he intends to open a U.S. consulate for Palestine in Jerusalem. Prime Minister Bennett's response was not positive to that. Uh, in fact, he indicated publicly uh, his opposition to President Biden's proposal. Uh, Foreign Minister uh, Lapid called Biden's proposal a bad idea. Um, indeed, the U.S. Embassy currently has a Palestinian Affairs Unit at Agron. I visited that facility in June of this year. Um, if the U.S. government were to open and maintain an embassy, a consulate, a legation, 
some type of function like that, some type of diplomatic facility in Jerusalem besides the one that exists inside the uh, U.S. Embassy to the State of Israel, do you think that that course of action is consistent with the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995? Uh, do you think that that supports the philosophy of that law, that Jerusalem is the undivided capital of the State of Israel? Uh, Senator, yes, I do. I fundamentally believe that um, the Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. The embassy will be in Jerusalem. As you know, the issue around the consulate, that consulate has existed in one form or another for almost 130 years, in some one form or another. So uh, obviously, the opening of the consulate, if it occurs, and as you know, the president has, has indicated, as well as the secretary, that we'd like to open the, the consulate, it will have no impact upon the, the capital of Israel being Jerusalem. So uh, this is something, obviously, if I'm fortunate enough to be uh, confirmed, I'll be obviously addressing, but obviously taking my direction for the president and the secretary of state. I appreciate the position you're in. I just hope that we take into account the position of our ally Israel, our strongest ally in the Middle East, and their concerns I think are very relevant and pertinent to, to, to this discussion. I'd like to turn to another point very quickly, and that is yesterday the House decided to remove funding to resupply and replenish the Iron Dome uh, rocket defense system. I was very disappointed to see it. I'm also happy that Leader McConnell and Appropriations Committee Vice Chairman Shelby are proposing a continuing resolution that will include a billion dollars to replenish the Iron Dome. In fact, earlier this year, I introduced the Emergency Resupply for the Iron Dome Act of 2021 to immediately resupply the Iron Dome. I did that along with our colleagues, Senator Cruz and Rubio here. Um, I also visited Israel with Senator Cruz immediately after the 11-day war. I saw the benefit of having a technology like that that saved both Israeli and Palestinian lives. And I want to ask you if you agree that that defensive capability that we provided through the Iron Dome is actually a, a benefit to our relationship with Israel and to their position there. Absolutely, Senator. I'll make just one, one quick point. Number one, the president has been very clear that he supports the replenishment of the Iron Dome. Number two, obviously it's in our national security interest to support a very, very important ally in the region. And this is a defensive mechanism. It is for to stop rockets from raining in on Israel. So we are... Uh, supportive of the replenishment, and it's in our national security interest, and it is our desire and hope that that's, those funds will be provided uh, to uh, replenish the Iron Dome. Thank you. I'm very pleased to hear that position. Thanks very much. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Just a, a, a few quick comments and then a, a couple questions. Um, Senator Van Hollen and I just returned from a, a trip to Israel to meet with the new government. Incredibly impressive. This uh, coalition that has uh, come together, uh, an unlikely one. Um, the United States is at our best when we are a helpful and active broker for peace, um, when we are a friend of Israel, but when we are also acting to try to bring the Palestinians to the negotiating table. Uh, we abdicated that responsibility for the last four years. Uh, and uh, as you mentioned, uh, Mr. Nides, uh, there was a consulate in Jerusalem for 150 years. This was a effective non-issue uh, prior to the closure of that consulate during the Trump administration. It's an easy thing to do to just go back to the status quo of a century plus. Um, but it is important to the Palestinians because they see it as a way for this administration to signal that um, we care about the plight of Palestinians. Um, 
just like we care about the security of Israel. Similarly, I support uh, Iron Dome funding. Uh, I think we should telegraph right now that we are going to continue to be a full partner uh, with Israel and making sure that they can defend themselves. Uh, but I also think we need to send a message that we are going to restart our partnership with the Palestinians to try to address their legitimate humanitarian needs. This committee has um, at times not been helpful in allowing the administration to get money to the Palestinian Authority. There are desperate reconstruction needs in Gaza right now. And so my suggestion uh, is that we should move ahead with Iron Dome funding, but we should partner it with some significant humanitarian relief to the Palestinian people. I think that's just the right thing to do. Um, Mr. Knights, I wanted to ask you uh, a specific question about the Palestinian elections that have been postponed now. Um, I think it's really important for there to be elections in the PA, um, in particular because we need a shot at new leadership. We need the ability of some uh, new voices uh, to be able to break through. Um, they were postponed, and the reason given was that there was not a commitment uh, by the Israeli government to allow for elections to happen inside Jerusalem. I don't know if that's the real reason or not, but I certainly know it would be a lot better if the Israelis made that commitment. And while we were there, uh, the prime minister and the PA made a commitment that if the Israelis allowed for elections to go forward in, amongst Palestinians in Jerusalem, uh, they would schedule them within six months. Um, how important do you think it is that these elections take place and what role can you as an ambassador play in trying to make sure that they occur? Um, Senator, first of all, thank you for your, your question, your statement, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. As I said to Senator Kane a few minutes ago, um, we, have to, we as Americans need to set the table for the potential of a two-state solution through assistance and through strong support for Israel, the MOU, so we can, we can actually chew, walk and chew gum at the same time as it relates to doing both at the same time. As it relates to the, the elections, um, I agree with you, elections would be good for the Palestinians. Um, if I am fortunate enough to be uh, confirmed, I'll work with the uh, Israeli government to assure that that issue is not an obstacle to achieve uh, elections. And as you and I both know, we're not sure how much of that was, was the reason, but I would certainly work to make sure that is taken off the table as an issue or an obstacle for elections uh, in the, uh, in, uh, for, with the Palestinians. Yeah, I think that's the right approach. Let's eliminate all of the excuses to not go forward with this election. I understand the danger of this election. Hamas is obviously now in the wake of the latest conflict, more politically potent in the West Bank than ever before, but that in and of itself is not a reason to try to give a new generation of leaders the chance to step up. Mr. Cohen, just very quickly, um, sanctions coordination between the United States and Canada. We're, we're best when we do things together. We work together, for instance, on uh, sanctions um, uh, on Belarus. Um, what's your analysis of the willingness of the Canadian government uh, to be able to continue to work with us on sanctions? Um, how important do you think that will be in your new role. It seems like an area where we can, where we can do more, where we can communicate earlier. Um, we're stronger when the United States and Canada speak together on, on issues of, of pro-democracy and pro-human rights sanctions policy. Uh, Senator, by the way, good to see you. Good afternoon. Um, I think your question is absolutely correct. 
um, in that we are, whenever Canada and the United States can work together, we are more powerful, we speak with a greater voice. This, the issue of sanctions coordination and sanctions policy is an issue that this committee has dealt with. And, um, you know, there, there is legislation now for a sanctions coordinator position um, within, the, within the State Department. Um, and I think the work was started on creating that. The plug was pulled during the Trump administration. Um, it is my understanding that um, work is being done to identify a candidate to be nominated for that position, which would report to the Secretary of State. And I think that is an important tool um, to improve the coordination of sanctions, which will improve the effectiveness of sanctions and will be another example of Canada and the United States being able to work together to advance our mutual goals. Great. Thank you very much. Look forward to working with you on that. Thank you. Uh, I understand uh, Senator Van Hollen is with us virtually. Uh, yes, uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, uh, thank you to all of our nominees. Uh, congratulations uh, on your nominations. Uh, Mr. Cohen, um, great to see a fellow Swarthmore alum uh, nominated <laughs> to be our ambassador to Canada. Uh, I do have uh, some serious concerns with our, the current disconnect um, in our policy with respect to Canada and travel to the United States. Um, if you're vaccinated uh, in, can't, as a Canadian, you can fly to the United States, but uh, can't cross uh, the border by car. And this is despite the fact that Canada has a higher vaccination rate than the United States. So if I have time uh, at the end of my question, I may circle back with you uh, on that issue. Um, Mr. Nides, uh, congratulations on your nomination. Great to see you. Um, I agree with the points that you made in your opening statement. Um, I recently traveled to Israel and the West Bank with Senator Murphy and two of our uh, colleagues, um, and you heard some of the report uh, just now from Senator Murphy. We had positive visits uh, in both stops. Um, we very much uh, and warmly welcomed uh, many of the new steps being taken by the government in Israel. Uh, we discussed the importance of our relationship, including the continuation of the MOU, which you referenced uh, in your opening remarks. Uh, and I fully support uh, replenishment of the Iron Dome, uh, which helped uh, save lives uh, in the recent conflict between Israel uh, and Hamas. Uh, you say in your statement uh, that we need to work to preserve the vision of a two-state solution. I agree with you. Um, as you know, President agrees with you. If you could just say in your own words um, why you think that that's important uh, for the future, uh, both for Israel and for pa the Palestinians, and what you will do as ambassador to uh, preserve uh, that option, as you say in your statement. Uh, Senator, thank you for the question. Um, you know, if, if my, and I've said this before, if my North Star is a, a democratic Jewish state, right, um, I believe to preserve that, to preserve that, having a two-state solution preserves that. I think it creates the environment for the Palestinians to live with the same freedom and security and prosperity that the Israelis have. I believe that us providing the assistance for the Palestinian people is critically important. It's not just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do for our own security. 
I think providing security assistance is the right thing to do for not only Israel and the Palestinians, but for the Americans as well. You know, Israel is our most, if not one of the most important allies that we have in the region and in the world. And keeping that safe is relatively and exceptionally important for their security and for our national security. So I just think if you fundamentally believe, as I do, um, that um, a two-stage solution provides that security for the long haul, um, I think it's the right thing to do. It's the, it's the smart thing to do. And if I'm uh, fortunate enough to get confirmed, I'll work towards that goal. And what, what specific uh, measures uh, would you take as ambassador to uh, preserve that option? Because as you know, you know, the door is rapidly closing through changes on the ground uh, with respect to a two-state solution. So what measures do you think need to be taken to keep that option open? If, I, if I'm fortunate enough to get confirmed, the, the most important thing is for neither parties, either the Israelis or the Palestinians, to take unilateral action that prevents that from happening. And so if I'm fortunate enough to get confirmed, I will work with the parties to avoid that. And we all know those issues that create the environment that allows for conflicts to occur. So I think the goal of the ambassador is to, to articulate a, a division of the president and the secretary of state, uh, but to try to keep the parties not creating a atmosphere that we can't move forward on a vision of a two-state solution. Uh, thank, uh, thank you. you. Uh, we also, as Senator Murphy said, uh, met with uh, Prime Minister Steyer in the West Bank, um, who said and acknowledged the importance of uh, opening up uh, the Palestinian Authority to uh, elections. Uh, as you probably saw, they just announced municipal elections uh, this December. Uh, but there is the issue of the Legislative Assembly uh, elections. So I'm pleased to see hear your, your response to Senator Murphy uh, with respect to um, working with our, our Israeli partners to make sure that Palestinians in East Jerusalem can vote and make sure that that's not an excuse for not going forward with the legislative elections. Uh, finally, as you know, the president uh, has said that uh, he wants to reverse uh, the decision by the Trump administration uh, It shut down our consulate uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, do you support reopening that consulate as the president has uh, committed to do? And uh, what do you think the timetable for that will be? Uh, I, I certainly support uh, that, as the president has indicated, the Secretary of State has announced. Um, I can't, until I'm obviously confirmed, I'm not privy to the conversations that are happening between the State Department or the, or the administration with the, with the Israelis. Uh, but obviously, that's something that's once I, if I'm fortunate enough to get confirmed, we'll work on uh, and be able to report back to you on a timing. Thank, Thank you. you. Mr. Chairman, Chairman, I can't see the clock. Is uh, my time run out? Uh, it ran out a while ago. All right. Well, thank, thank you all very much. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, this uh, particular part of the hearing uh, is now over. Uh, this record is going to remain open to the close of business tomorrow for questions to the record. I would urge the nominees, if they get a question, to respond to it expeditiously and fully so that we can consider your nominations for a business meeting. And with the thanks of the committee, uh, we will now move to our second panel. Let me introduce uh, our second panel as they get themselves adjusted uh, to the uh, 
to their positions. We have two nominations on the second panel. Uh, our colleague, former colleague, Senator Tom Udall, to be ambassador to New Zealand and Samoa, and Ms. Sarah Morgan to be the Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. I'd ask our other nominees to please take your conversations outside of uh, the chamber so we can move on. Um, I know that uh, Senators Heinrich and, Lu and Lujan uh, have expressed their interest in uh, introducing Senator Udall, but they have not yet arrived, so we will wait uh, for them in a moment. Uh, and um, is Senator Feingold with us virtually? I also understand that our former colleague and member of this committee, uh, Senator Feingold, is going to introduce Ms. Morgan virtually today. Um, is uh, Senator Feingold with us? Senator Feingold, uh, welcome back to the committee, even if it's virtually. We'll recognize you to uh, give an introduction to Ms. Marco. Thank, Thank you so, so much, uh, Mr. Chairman and uh, Ranking Member Risch and members of the committee. Thank you for this opportunity to speak with you today to introduce Sarah Margon, a nominee for Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, which is known as DRL. I worked closely with DRL during my tenure at the State Department uh, when I was the Special Envoy to the Great Lakes region of Africa. Uh, I would argue that DLR's, DRL's work has never been more important than it is right now, with democracy going head-to-head -head with the growing threats of kleptocracy and authoritarianism around the globe. Right now, democracy is losing some ground in several countries, with devastating consequences for human rights, the rule of law, independent judiciaries, and other democratic principles. Now, President Biden has stressed repeatedly that human rights must be at the center of our foreign policy and I could not agree more. Democracy and human rights go hand in hand, and DRL is at the forefront of implementing President Biden's commitment to human rights and to crafting and implementing policy aimed at strengthening and preserving the democratic values That's and good. principles that we so staunchly believe in and cherish. Sarah is an exceptional candidate to lead DRL at this time and to help inform and guide a human rights and democracy-focused U.S. foreign policy. It's a true honor for me to introduce her. Uh, she came to work for me many years ago when I was a member of this committee. At the time, she was coming not just from Oxfam America, but she came into the office almost literally right from a trip she had taken to Eastern Chad. I mention this because it is indicative of Sarah's lifetime commitment to an approach to addressing conflict and crises across the globe. Her policy perspectives are continuously informed and driven by her experiences traveling to these countries and working directly with affected communities. No problem. I knew then that her experience and commitment would help develop meaningful legislation and policy change as it has throughout her career and will in a new role 
as Assistant Secretary of State if she is confirmed. I'll just highlight a couple of things that make her unique. She has a strong commitment to bipartisan foreign policy. I saw this firsthand when she worked in my office and worked closely with senators on both sides of the aisle to advance meaningful foreign policy. This included working with Senator Isaacson on many democracy issues, Senators Inhofe and Brownback to pass legislation to help protect civilians in northern Uganda, happy to do it. and Senators McCain and Graham on issues relating to Egypt's growing repression and election concerns in 2010, of course, just before the Tahrir Square protests in 2011. She takes the time to listen to all sides and stakeholders, including those whom she disagrees with so she can ensure that she's fully informed. She regularly made time to speak to my constituents in Wisconsin and hear their concerns about everything from Indonesia and East Timor and Sri Lanka. She believed they had important contributions to make to our policy work. If she's confirmed, I know that Sarah will be committed to engaging the American public beyond the beltway on America's role in the world, and she will never lose sight that her principal job is to serve the American public. Sarah believes fiercely in the important role of Congress when it comes to foreign policy. Will state that this is particularly important to me and one of the reasons that I hired Sarah. She firmly believes that Congress must play an active and assertive role in foreign policy, both in terms of helping to build and support an agenda that represents all of America and in terms of oversight of the executive. She understands the experience and tools to make good policy. Her rich experience makes her an expert on the full toolkit deployed by her State Department from punitive measures like economic sanctions to incentivizing and re relationship building. She understands that meaningful and impactful policy uh, cannot be made in a vacuum. And you know, I saw her uh, demonstrate this as we traveled all the way from Eastern Congo to Djibouti and even Peshawar, Pakistan, where we were working on these issues. Uh, Sarah is driven by a deep belief in and commitment to ensuring that the United States is a force for good in the world. This translates to a fierce commitment to diplomacy and the necessary work to build and maintain positive, constructive relationships across borders. I want to close by underscoring Sarah's values, which drive her work every day. She brings sincere integrity to her work. She is solution-oriented, which is exactly what we need at this time, when democracy is on the back foot around the world, and when basic, fundamental liberties are under attack. I think it would be a little hard to find someone who is more genuinely devoted to advancing human rights and democracy and doing so in an informed, transparent, and collaborative manner than Sarah. If confirmed, she'll be an open, honest broker for improving human rights and democracy around the world. So I recommend Sarah Margon as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, and I thank you so much for the pleasure of testifying before you. Uh, thank you, Senator Feingold. Good to see you, and we uh, appreciate your glowing recommendation of Ms. Margon. Uh, we've now been joined by two of our colleagues, uh, Senator Heinrich and Senator Lujan, who will uh, join in introducing uh, Senator U Udalls. Senator Heinrich. Chairman Menendez, uh, Ranking Member Risch, and all the distinguished members of this committee, uh, it's really my honor today, my distinct honor, to introduce President Biden's nominee to serve as the next U.S. Ambassador to New Zealand and Samoa and obviously our former colleague, Senator Tom Udall. As a long-serving member of this committee, uh, I know Tom is no stranger to any of you. Uh, 
But I wanted to make sure to echo what I'm sure anyone who has worked with Tom Udall over the years would say about his incredible character and the deep commitment that he has to public service. Tom has devoted his entire life to my state, to serving the people of New Mexico and to serving this great nation. First as our state's attorney general, then for 10 years in the US House of Representatives, followed by two terms in this body in the United States Senate. And during the time that the, the both of us served here together in the Senate, uh, Tom Udall proved to be a constant friend and close mentor to me. He also set a true example of what it means to be a public servant. Over his two terms in the Senate, Tom showed all of us how to act with decency and integrity, how to stay true to your principles, but also how to find common ground. And these are all qualities that I am very confident will serve him well in this new diplomatic role representing our nation's interests abroad. With all of his experience on climate issues and his work with indigenous communities, he is uniquely qualified to build upon our nation's cooperation and shared interests with our allies in New Zealand and Samoa. And I can truly think of no one better suited to represent our country and face international challenges than Tom Udall. On behalf of Julie and myself, I want to congratulate both Tom and his wife, Jill, on this new opportunity to continue their lifelong service to our country. And I sincerely hope that each and every one of you on this committee will join me in supporting this incredibly qualified nominee. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you. Senator Lujan. Thank you, Chairman. It's an honor to be here this morning before the committee uh, alongside Senators Udall and Heinrich. Senator Udall has spent his career, his life, serving fellow New Mexicans and our brothers and sisters across America. Both he and Jill Udall have made a tremendous difference in the lives of so many. As our State Attorney General, U.S. Representative, and United States Senator, Tom was deeply and continues to be committed to fighting for everyone to get a fair shake. You know Tom, and Tom knows you. Yesterday at the United Nations, President Biden pledged a new era of relentless American diplomacy. And today's consideration of Senator Udall to serve as U.S. Ambassador to New Zealand and Samoa's proof of the President's commitment to restore American leadership around the globe. New Mexicans know Tom as a true statesman and as a leader, as a friend and as a mentor who takes the climate crisis seriously. He cares about others, he leads by example and treats people with respect and dignity. This ambassadorship matters. New Zealand and Samoa are leading on many important issues and are important partners in the fight against the climate crisis. As ambassador, I'm confident that Senator Udall will make New Mexico and our country proud. He'll bring the same energy and commitment and hopefully a few bolo ties to the world stage. <laughs> this is an exciting day for Tom and Jill and for countless New Mexicans back home. Tom is a highly qualified nominee and it's my honor to stand with him 
and Jill to date. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Lujan, for the glowing recommendation of our colleagues. So uh, we appreciate it. We know you have other issues uh, to attend to, so don't hesitate to leave when you think it's appropriate. Um, and I, I'll just note uh, as well uh, that uh, Congressman Malinowski from my home state of New Jersey is here with us. He was the former, uh, uh, had the former position that Ms. Margon is being nominated for as the Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. We welcome him uh, to the committee. And since you're here, Congressman, we need to talk about the CASE Act uh, and updating it so that we can actually get some information in real time these days. So we look forward to working with you on that. Um, let me briefly uh, speak to these two nominees. Uh, Senator Udall, welcome back to the committee. You now know what it feels to be on the other side of this questioning, so, uh, but we know you're gonna do great. Congratulations on your nomination to Jill as well. I'm glad that President Biden selected you for this important post. I'm confident that upon confirmation, you'll represent the United States well in New Zealand and in the independent state of Samoa. As you know, New Zealand is one of our closest partners, a partnership that is critical in this new era of strategic competition now more than ever, the United States has to pursue intense diplomatic outreach in order to support our common goals for addressing climate change, expanding economic and trade opportunities, and building security partnerships. Climate change is one of the most pressing national security challenges of our time, and it poses a significant threat to Pacific Island nations. Um, overall, I believe we need to reinvigorate our, democratic, uh, our diplomatic presence and outreach to New Zealand and Samoa, and I'm confident that you will be very well up to that task. So we look forward to hearing your goals for how we can deepen one of the closest diplomatic relationships we have even further. Uh, Ms. Margon, congratulations on your nomination to DRL. You have extensive experience working to advance human rights and democratic values as well as support from a bipartisan group of national security leaders, human rights and civil society organizations including prominent Jewish organizations who believe in the importance of the U.S.-Israel partnership and the importance of a two-state solution for ensuring Israel's future as a Jewish and democratic state. But I also know there have been questions about some of the nuances here, and I trust you'll be able to answer those questions. Uh, the need for strong, effective leadership at the helm of DRL has never been more necessary. In every region of the world today, authoritarian governments are seizing more and more power, dismantling core democratic institutions and closing in on journalists and civil society. Today, Beijing, Moscow, and their kleptocratic partners are driving global authoritarian expansion. They do this through increasingly sophisticated digital authoritarian surveillance and control tools that we put out a, a, a very significant report from this committee and through old-fashioned arrests, peaceful protests, and shutting down independent media. To that end, we witnessed the sovereign of the Cuban regime unleash a brutal wave of repression in response to unprecedented protests by the Cuban people. While the Trump administration took a wrecking ball to our reputation, the Biden administration is doing vital work to reassert the U.S. role in championing democracy and human rights around the globe. That effort, however, was badly damaged this summer by the flawed withdrawal from Afghanistan and the unfolding human rights catastrophe. From Burma to Ethiopia, the amount of human rights concerns around the world is vast. 
We understand that at times the United States faces hard choices where foreign policy and national security interests do not align neatly with the values we strive to reflect as a nation. Upon occasion, that is unavoidable. But we also know that the organizational structure at the State Department has allowed a culture to flourish in which human rights concerns gets less traction because the powerful regional bureaus frequently sideline DRL. I look forward to hearing from you about how, if confirmed, you will work to recenter our foreign policy around the core American values of democracy, human rights, and the rule of law that advance our U.S. national interests and the cause of freedom and human dignity that rightly belongs to people everywhere. And I'll just close by saying today we had a, a, a breakfast meeting with uh, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson. And in that conversation, one of the things that he said that I thought was so poignant for our other colleagues to hear was how important it was for the United States to raise the principles of democracy and human rights and what it means to the rest of the world to do so. So uh, uh, this is an incredibly important position. Now, I know that the ranking member has, uh, as well, opening remarks as it relates to um, these nominees. Um, and when he returns, I'll recognize him as such he's voting right now. But in the interest of expediting uh, this process, uh, let me turn to uh, uh, Senator Udall first for his opening uh, statement. I ask you both to try to summarize your statements in about five minutes. Your full statements will be included in the record without objection. And with that, Senator Udall, the floor is yours. Thank you, uh, Chairman Menendez. And I want to thank so much uh, Senator Heinrich and Senator Lujan for coming and introducing me. Uh, Ranking Member Risch and members of the committee, it's an honor and pleasure to meet with all of you again. As a former member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, I have great respect for the important work you are doing to consider the diplomatic nominations before you. Today, I have exchanged my seat on the dais to sit as President Biden's nominee to serve as the United States Ambassador to New Zealand and to the independent state of Samoa. After a career of public service in the state of New Mexico, including two terms as New Mexico Attorney General, five terms as United States Representative, and two terms as United States Senator, I'm grateful for the trust of the President and Secretary Blinken that they have placed in me to represent the United States overseas. The advice and consent role of the United States Senate, Mr. Chairman, as you know well, is one of the most important roles granted to Congress by the Constitution, and I'm honored by this committee's consideration of my nomination. Mr. Chairman, with your permission, I'd like to take a moment to introduce my wife, Jill Cooper. She's been my partner and chief advisor during my 30 years of public service. She's an accomplished lawyer in her own right and a strong advocate for the arts. Having served as a member of the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities, while, and while they are not here with me today in these chambers, I'd like to recognize my daughter, Amanda, and my son-in-law, Judge Jim Knoll. In January, I marked the conclusion of serving New Mexico in the United States Senate. New Mexico is a mountainous and rural state strong in its multiculturalism. 
including a vibrant indigenous culture. New Mexico is also rich in natural resources and growing tech and space and cinematic sectors complete with a vital national security sector. In all these respects, New Mexico is very much like New Zealand. Both are aiming for the stars. Both continue to invest in new space sectors, advancing science, human progress, and cinematic storytelling set in their unique geographies. While there are numerous positive comparisons, it's no secret that New Zealand and Samoa, like New Mexico, face enormous threats from climate change. As a senator, I made protection of the environment a priority, from championing the 30 by 30 proposal to conserve 30% of our lands and waters by 2030, to passing the landmark bipartisan Frank Lautenberg Chemical Safety Act. The President has made it clear that climate considerations shall be an essential element of United States foreign policy and national security. As Ambassador, I look forward to working with New Zealand, a country that shares my passion for the protection of our natural environment. I also look forward to maintaining the strong political, military, and intelligence relationship we share with New Zealand from World War II when tens of thousands of Americans were stationed in New Zealand. Through the post-war Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance formed by the United States, Great Britain, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, and from support for our forces in Afghanistan in 2001, as well as other peacekeeping missions to, to formalize our strengthening defense cooperation in the 2012 Washington Declaration. Just last week, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern affirmed that recent developments in the Indo-Pacific do not change the security intelligent ties of New Zealand to the Five Eyes Alliance. Members of this committee have been clear that the United States cannot challenge all the threats in the region alone. We need allies like New Zealand, and we need to, need to help them thrive despite these regional challenges. We should not allow outside influences to drive a wedge in that relationship. As ambassador, I will work to protect and grow mutual goodwill between our nations. Countering and competing with the People's Republic of China requires strong partnerships with countries throughout the region. Beijing continues to pressure countries that stand up to its human rights violations to threaten freedom of navigation and to violate international rules and norms. So I'd, like you say, I would just ask that the rest of my statement be put in the record and it will be a real honor uh, if confirmed uh, to go off as an ambassador to New Zealand and Samoa. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for the courtesies. And uh, Ranking Member Risch, I, I uh, mentioned you. It's wonderful to see you here in person. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Udall. As I announced, I would recognize the ranking member at this time. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. I want to speak briefly on both nominees and uh, then, of course, uh, uh, questions. Uh, first of all, it'll come probably as no surprise to many that the, uh, the nominee for uh, Secretary, Dep Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, uh, the nominee uh, is going to be very difficult and a heavy lift for me to support. The nominee has made some deeply troubling public statements related to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, including on the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, BDS movement, against Israel. 
and uh, funding to the biased organizations uh, in Gaza, which I'm going to ask some questions on. The nominee also told my staff, surprisingly, that she feels both the current and prior administrations, both the current Biden administration and the Trump administration's airstrikes against Iranian proxy targets were illegal. This view is against those of the Department of State, the Department of Defense, and the legal advice spanning both administrations. Uh, with these kinds of, uh, if this is the kind of advice that she's going to give to the secretary, it's going to be very difficult to support her. Further, the nominee uh, publicly congratulated a private company for participating in the BDS movement against Israel and urged other companies to do likewise. She also tweeted in support of a July 20 New York uh, Times op-ed entitled, I No Longer Believe in a Jewish State. We'll talk about that when we get to questions. On the nomination uh, for the ambassador to New Zealand and Samoa, it's good to see you, uh, Senator Udall, and your lovely wife. Uh, I talked to uh, Senator Brown this morning, and uh, he feels that uh, you have won the lottery and are, uh, have been sentenced to paradise. So he's, uh, he, he's uh, high on this. Uh, if confirmed, uh, we'd, uh, you'd be charged with stewardship of our relationships with these two nations where we've seen malign influence from the People's Republic of China and where there is room for our partnerships to grow. I look forward to hearing your priorities on these issues. China recently submitted information to, the New, Zealand, to New Zealand to join the comprehensive, progressive, trans-Pacific partnership trade agreement. Yet we have seen the PRC use its economic might to coerce and bully its neighbors in the region. I'm therefore skeptical of the PRC's ability to be a good trade partner. This development also reminds us of the importance of a strong U.S. economic and trade agenda in the Indo-Pacific region a key element of the Strategic Competition Act passed by the Senate earlier this year. I'll be interested in hearing your thoughts on that. Again, good to see you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Risch. With that, I'll turn to Ms. Morgan now. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of the committee. I am honored to be here today as the nominee for Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, and deeply grateful to the President and Secretary Blinken for the trust they've placed in me. It's an honor to have Senator Feingold introduce me. Working for him was a masterclass in principled integrity. As a result of his leadership, I saw how standing up for what's right can be central to effective policymaking, and that reaching across the aisle usually makes for better and stronger policy. Yeah. Indeed, America in the world should represent all Americans. I come from a long line of New Yorkers, many of whom rarely left this state, but all of whom believed in the promise of a better life through hard work and a little bit of luck. It is that gritty mindset that enabled my grandfathers, Albert Simon, born Abraham Simonovsky, and Solomon Mugalivsky, changed to Margon, to flourish. One owned a pharmacy in Queens, the other became a dentist in Brooklyn. That same grit could be found in their wives as well. Gertrude Simon labored at her family's light and lampshade business in Brooklyn's Pitkin Avenue and raised two girls while Florence Margon became a secretary, carrying her family through the Depression, and in later years, raising my father all at the same time. I am deeply grateful for the support of my parents, Arthur and Marilyn Margon, my brother Andrew Margon, and sister-in-law Zoe stopak Bear, my husband Sam Sheltain, who's here, whose big dreams and generosity are all the cushion one could need, and my two sons, who are also here, eight-and-a-half-year-old Izzy and 12-year-old Leo, both of whom give me the hope give me hope for the curiosity, decency, and empathy of future generations. I am also indebted to the women of national security and their guidance, wisdom, and community. 
Today's chaotic and complicated world requires us to be more firmly tethered to core democratic principles. Rising repression and autocracy require us to be bold in adhering to these values, which, as the president has said, are inseparable from our national interests and are the foundation of our diplomatic strength. The global assault on basic freedoms also requires us to be intentional about who we support and why we fight for rights and dignity. This means considering not just policy choices, but also how we engage in countries where those in power are using state institutions, the media, elections, corrupt individuals and entities, and even the pandemic to centralize power undemocratically and to repress their people. If confirmed, I will apply these insights to focus on three priorities. First, I will ensure DRL carries forward an agenda that affirms the United States as a leader and a partner in the struggle for democracy, pluralism, and rights. Our priority must be protecting these foundational values and making sure governments like China, Russia, and Cuba do not, do not succeed in their efforts to undermine international human rights norms and the rules-based order. I will pay special attention to China, whose pernicious attacks on dissent and the rule of law are both on the rise domestically and fast becoming a common export. Second, I believe we must focus on countering technological and digital threats as a human rights issue. For example, as we have seen too often, the promotion of disinformation from Russia to China to Ethiopia can have life and death implications. Without US leadership and pushback, malign actors will continue abusing technology to enable mass atrocities, undermine democracy and human rights, and harm U.S. interests. Congress has been on the front lines of this fight, and if confirmed, I look forward to navigating the path together. Third, I will focus on ensuring human rights is considered as part of U.S. armed sales and security assistance. Advancing democracy and protecting human rights are national security interests, as the President has made clear. If confirmed, I will make sure DRL provides strong analysis to help ensure our decisions on these issues align with our democratic values and our commitments on human rights. If confirmed, I look forward to a strong working partnership with Congress so that together we can promote and protect our shared American values and interests around the world. I will endeavor to make good use of the bipartisan tools you have already developed, from the global Magnitsky sanctions to the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act to the Corporate Transparency Act and I will engage allies, the private sector, and civil society to help realize the Biden-Harris administration's goal of centering human rights within U.S. foreign policy. Thank you for your consideration of my nomination. I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. Uh, before I turn to Senator Risch, I have some questions that are for the committee as a whole, and they require a simple yes or no answer. Uh, it's, these questions speak to the importance that the committee places on responsiveness by all officials in the executive branch and that we expect and will be seeking from you. So I would ask each of you to provide verbally a yes or no answer. Do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes. Yes. Do you commit to keep the committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes. Yes. Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just simply providing notification after the fact? Yes. Yes. And finally, do you commit to promptly responding to questions for briefings and information requested by this committee and its designated staff? Yes. Yes. Thank you. The, both witnesses said yes to all questions. 
The chair will reserve his time, and I'll turn to the ranking member for his question. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Ms. Morgan, were you here when uh, Mr. Nidus uh, testified? I was in the anteroom, Senator, yes. Did you hear his testimony and questions? I did. I assume you do not share his enthusiasm for the uh, despicable anti-Semitic movement called BDS, uh, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. Senator, I firmly oppose the BDS movement. Well, I'm looking here at a tweet that uh, you wrote on November 19, 2018. It says, Airbnb to remove listings in Israeli settlements of occupied West Bank. Thanks, Airbnb, for showing some good leadership here. Other companies should follow suit. Did you write that? Yes, Senator. And you don't consider that part of the BDS movement? Senator, I firmly oppose the BDS movement. I do believe that the private sector has an important role to play in not pursuing discriminatory practices. I don't understand that. Senator, I am not and have never been a supporter of the BDS moment, movement. I oppose it. This, how, how do you square that statement with the text uh, that you put out November 19, 2018? That tweet was in response to a Human Rights Watch report. And again, just to be very clear, I believe the private sector across the board has an important role to play in not promoting or pursuing discriminatory po policies. So you support any company that would, that would participate in the BDS movement? Senator, I firmly oppose the BDS movement, and if I am confirmed to be Assistant Secretary of DRL, I will continue to do so, just as the Biden administration does. Well, uh, th that doesn't square with what you said here on November 9th. You can say it over and over and over again. It just doesn't make it true, and it doesn't square with what you said in, uh, on, in 2018. Have you changed your mind since 2018? Senator, that, that tweet was related to a very specific report it was, it, was res, it was in respect to a very specific action by Airbnb supporting the, boy, the BDS movement. That was actually a report relating to their renting uh, apartments. And as I have said, and will continue, just like the Biden administration does, I am firmly opposed to the BDS movement. With all due respect, ma'am, I don't believe it. Not with, what you, not, not with what you put out here. Saying it over and over again just doesn't square with your actions. I'm sorry, Senator, that you don't believe it. That is my firm belief. And if I am confirmed going forward, I think you will see as a member of the Biden administration that that is the policy that I will implement. When you met with uh, my staff, uh, you made the statement that you believed that uh, the uh, airstrike against uh, Soleimani was illegal. Do you still uh, uh, stand by that statement? That was from a tweet you're referring to? No, that was in a meeting with my staff when you were preparing uh, for this. That conversation, Senator, was in relation to a tweet that I had put out. Um, I think that's probably a conversation best had with the legal advisor's office at the State Department, for which I am not nominated. Maybe, uh, but you stated that you thought that that airstrike was illegal. Is that true or not true? I did, I did write that tweet at the time, but again, I am looking at a position that is not for the legal advisor's office. I, I get that. I'm, what I'm looking for is your view of these things. Uh, obviously, the position you're in is not a legal position, but it certainly is very important in developing policy. Uh, they also tell me that you said that the, uh, that the strikes that uh, the past administration and, the, and even the current administration were illegal. Is that your position? Senator, I think... 
to be fair, there are wide discussions over the legality of some of these strikes. I am not a lawyer right now. Uh, I have never been a lawyer. I did work for an organization that engaged on these questions, but if I am confirmed, I would consult with the legal advisors at the State Department to come to a determination. Well, I, I get that, and, and everybody here has to consult with the lawyers. Nonetheless, our policy decisions are based by our personal beliefs in that regard, and I am really, really troubled by these. Have they straightened you out? Has the administration... My staff tells me that your Sherpa almost fainted when you said that the uh, current that the strikes by the current administration were illegal. Have they straightened you out on that? Are you willing to go along with the administration's Of, of course I'm willing to go along. President Biden, Secretary Blinken have nominated me to do a job, and I will uphold administration policy. In, uh, on July, uh, in July of uh, 2020, uh, you retweeted an article from the New York Times op-ed entitled, I No Longer Believe in a Jewish State. You retweeted that with uh, approval. Do you still uh, uh, subscribe to that? Senator, sometimes when we tweet or say things in the heat of the moment, we don't necessarily think the broader impact of them. When I retweeted that article, what I was really focused on was the importance of ensuring Israelis and Palestinians could have equal protection under the law, access to democratic processes, security and prosperity. That was the thrust of my tweet and what I intended with that. I firmly believe in a two-state solution so that Israelis and Palestinians can live side by side in peace and security. Well, thank you for your answers. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to support your nomination, obviously. Uh, I, you, you haven't persuaded me at all. In fact, uh, I, I, I might have been persuaded if you'd have... Uh, owned up to these things and, uh, and confessed air. Um, well, I'm sorry I don't have any time for you, Senator Udall, but it's nice to see you. I know you'll uh, do a good job there, and uh, I'll help you every way I can get there. So thank you very much, and thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair and Ranking Member Rich, and thanks to our nominees. Congratulations to both you, particularly uh, to Senator Udall and Jill. Um, I'm such huge fans of both of you as wonderful public servants, and it's exciting that you've had a lot of wonderful chapters in the past, both in New Mexico government and in the United States Senate and in the House, and this next chapter is one I know you'll do every bit as well, so I'm so proud to support you. Uh, Ms. Margot, I want to ask you a question about the part of the world that I care most about outside the United States, and that's the Amer Americas. Um, I've been really troubled. I lived in Honduras when it was a military dictatorship, it's no longer military dictatorship, but arguably it's worse. And that's painful, uh, a country that's gone from a military dictatorship in 1981 to a, quote, democracy uh, is rife with corruption, the murder of journalists, the murder of environmental activists. Um, the, the current president was reelected in a widely disputed election. The OAS said it was so marked by fraud that the election should be rerun. For some reason, the United States discarded the OAS opinion and and support of the current government. And then what has happened, this president has been implicated in a variety of drug trafficking cases currently being brought in courts in the United States. The good news is there's elections this Sunday, uh, this weekend in Honduras. He's term limited, can't run again. But I could give you the same story in El Salvador where there's currently massive backsliding of a government that people had a lot of hope in, but that is behaving more and more authoritarian every day in Guatemala serious issues with corruption uh, in Nicaragua, 
brutal repression of political dissidents. Costa Rica is a bit of a bright spot. We heard from Dr. Tellez earlier. I think the United States doesn't pay enough attention to the Americas. Just because we're not paying attention doesn't mean China isn't paying attention. They are. Russia's paying attention. Cuba's paying attention. Iran is paying attention. And so I, I, I would hope this administration could really embrace a more robust and continuous engagement uh, with the Americas and show other nations, because uh, we are all Americans, North, Central, or South Americans, show other nations that our concern is continuous and not just episodic, quickly to be forgotten as we turn our attention elsewhere. But if we're going to have an America's policy, we're going to have to really grapple with issues of human rights and democracy. So should you be confirmed, what might your thoughts be about, as you say, centering human rights and pro-democracy uh, within uh, some of the nations that are the nearest to us? Thank you, Senator, for that question. And thanks for your longstanding work and interest in this region. It's, it's, it's been really notable. Uh, and you've been a real leader along with other members on this committee. I think the Biden administration has taken the right approach in looking at a, a, a root driver strategy and allocating $4 billion to the region. I think those two tranches are really important to start getting at what's at the foundation. It's not going to be something that can change overnight, but you mentioned many of the issues that we need to be looking at, not just assistance and development, but also anti-corruption, looking to build an independent judiciary, helping to work so that the security forces are actually viable entities that can protect the people, looking at criminal networks. There is a very much a, a punitive approach and a carrot and stick incentivizing approach, and I think they go hand in hand. So I think even before my confirmation, if that happens, there is good groundwork for which DRL will be able to work on. I see DRL's role, and if I am confirmed, I will hope to amplify this, is to bring the analysis of the human rights organizations and civil society into the policy making, to work with the regional bureau closely, but also to work with other agencies and, of course, with this body to make sure that there is a consistent, steadfast approach that the finances are sufficient, and frankly, that we bring in some of the other regional actors. I spoke yesterday with the chairman a little bit about Latin America and the importance of engaging broadly on democratic decline and governance deficits, and I think this is the perfect opportunity for DRL to really center its work, not just on election by election, as you say, but actually building and supporting with other partners the context in which those elections occur. I have never been to Central America myself, and I would really like to travel there as one of my first trips. I think that would send a very important message, not just about our commitment as a bureau, but our commitment as the United States. I thank you for that answer. There are two opportunities coming up that are really important. The Summit for Democracy that President Biden has indicated he wants to hold likely next year, and also the U.S. Chairmanship of the Summit for the Americas, which we haven't chaired in 25 years. And these are opportunities where these issues of democracy and human rights can, should be front and center. And I appreciate your answers. Mr. Chair, I yield back. Thank you. Senator Barrasso. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Well, congratulations to both of you. Senator Udall, great to see you again. Jill, nice to see you. As you know, when you gave your final speech on the floor, I made a number of comments about our service together and working in a bipartisan way. And uh, congratulations on this nomination. I think you'll be a magnificent uh, ambassador. So thank you, Senator. Um, Ms. Morgan, I, you know, on April 27th of this year, the Human Rights Watch published a report accusing Israel of being an apartheid state. 
Do you believe Israel is an apartheid state? No, Senator, I do not. Do you believe Israel commits war crimes when it acts to defend itself from rocket and other terror attacks from Gaza? No, Senator, I strongly support Israel's right to defend itself and to protect its people. Now, the Biden administration has announced its intention to rejoin the United Nations Human Rights Council. Um, you believe the Human Rights Council has a bias against Israel? That pesky item seven, Senator, on the agenda at the Human Rights Council needs to be addressed. If I am confirmed, one of the things I would like to do if the U.S. rejoins the Human Rights Council is work uh, with the International Organizations Bureau, the Ambassador to Geneva, and this committee to help reform the Human Rights Council so it is more effective, so it does not have a disproportionate bias against Israel, including that agenda item. I have seen in the past that when the U.S. is a member of that council, that there are less anti-Israel resolutions and there is a decrease in anti-Israel attacks. That would be one of my priorities. When I think about the Human Rights Council and the membership, do you know how many members of them are serious human rights abusers? There are a number of them that are very problematic, Senator. I don't know the exact number. Russia? Yes. China? Yes. Pakistan? Yes. Cuba? I, mean, I, I could go on, and it's, not the, it's to point out to me that I look at this, it says, that, you know, do you know of any of these that have actually had a resolution passed condemning either their own actions while on the council? Senator, your concern is well-placed, and I think this would be part of the reform agenda. I will also say that the Human Rights Council has put out some extraordinary reports in the past that this body, I think, has found very useful. I would draw your attention specifically to the Commission of Inquiry on uh, North Korea. I think it was published in 2014. Uh, that was an extraordinary documentation of the horrific abuses in DPRK. And my goal would be not only to help reform the membership, which I understand is a priority also of the Biden administration, but also to work with the council so that it has stronger, better membership, and they can produce more reports like that DPRK report. Because it does seem to me that a number of these keep themselves on the council specifically so they can avoid accountability. Uh, in terms of the blacklist the Human Rights Council has come up with, the Human Rights Council has published a blacklist of companies doing business in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Uh, many of them are American companies. Uh, it's viewed by many as laying the groundwork for sanctions against these companies. If confirmed, will you work to encourage the council to retract this database and discourage our allies from associating with, with this in any way? Yes. Okay. And what can the U.S. do to limit the continuation of this dangerous exercise by this group? This is part of why I think U.S. membership on the Human Rights Council is so important. It gives us a seat at the table. It allows us to help influence decisions. It allows us to engage, and it allows us to ensure there is not a strong anti-Israel bias, but that the Human Rights Council is looking broadly and globally at human rights abuses. So uh, on January 4th of the 2020, you tweeted this. The Iranian government is replete with nasty characters. Soleimani himself was horrifically brutal. But normalizing selective ally engagement to conduct an illegal action that not only normalizes assassinations, but also escalates dramatically, has taken us to a whole new scary level. So do you believe that the U.S. attack, attack on General Soleimani was illegal? Senator, this is a, a tweet, I think, if I were going forward, 
looking at this from my position, should I be confirmed as Assistant Secretary, I would need to review all of the evidence and the intelligence to make that assessment and consult with the Legal Advisor's Office. So, so what is your view of the Biden administration's botched drone attack that killed 10 civilians outside of Afghanistan in the last couple of weeks? Thank you for that question. I was really pleased to see the Pentagon and its press, its, excuse me, at its press conference admit to the uh, attack to talk about what had been happening, to talk about the investigation that was going to be underway. I think this is a very important step that the Pentagon has taken, and I understand that there is going to be an investigation, and from there we will see where it goes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Okay. Um, Ms. Morgan, uh, let me just get some things clear for the record. Did you ever advocate on behalf of the BDS movement? No, Senator. And regarding the allegation that has been flown around there characterizing Israel's actions as apartheid and attributed to you, to clarify, that refers to a report released by Human Rights Watch long after you departed the organization. Is that the tech case? That's correct. It was nearly two years later. Okay. Now, when we look at the question of human rights, especially when one is not in an administration, one has the uh, ability to look at it from the vantage, from the perspective uniquely about what is it that we seek to uh, uphold in terms of the fundamental universal declaration of human rights. Is that not fair to say? That would be fair to say, yes. And, and and the organization that you once worked with, uh, Human Rights Watch, which has been quoted by many members of Congress when they find it appropriate and, and of value to do so, looked at the world in terms of human rights violations in that context. Would that be fair to say? That's right. Okay. So uh, the questions about participating at the United Nations Human Rights Council, the reality is when we are not there, then we cede to the world's worst actors, the ability to take on allies like the state of Israel. Is that a fair statement? I would say yes, that so is. So while we do not like, and I certainly don't like, I find it appalling that Cuba can be on the Human Rights Council, but in the absence of the United States being there, I can't push back on them and others at the end of the day. And so I think that one has to think about the perspective Joining the Human Rights Council is not an acceptance of its actions. It is in defiance of its actions. Is that the way you would take the view if you were the Assistant Secretary? Yes, I think I would. I would also say, Senator, that it provides an exceptional opportunity for the United States to lead and to partner in pushing, pushing back against a number of those very abusive countries. I would also say that the Biden administration has said it not only wants to rejoin, but reform the council. And there are plenty of opportunities to further that effort. Now, Israel remains our only democratic ally in the Middle East, and our bilateral relationship is rooted on shared democratic values. As in the United States or any country with a democratic process, we may not always agree with every policy that every government pursues. International organizations, however, routinely, unfairly target Israel for alleged human rights abuses while in the same breath actively ignoring the gravely serious 
human rights abuses of the leaders of some of its neighbors. Would you commit to pushing back on unfair bias against Israel from international human rights organizations? Yes, absolutely. And then finally, uh, because the world is, uh, as much as Israel is incredibly important, the world that you will uh, be encountering is so many different parts of the world. So I could spend a lot of time talking to you about arms sales, which I will uh, in the near future, about China and, and uh, Belarus and Russia and many other places, about Turkey under Erdogan, even though they're a NATO ally, there are more journalists and lawyers in Turkish jails than in any other part of the world that's saying something, considering some of the nasty parts of the world, the Ethiopia and what is happening there in terms of human rights violations. So <coughs> I look forward to having a, a more in-depth discussion with you. But I do want to just talk about one, something I've broached with you when you came to visit me, and I appreciated our visit. Uh, and it's about Cuba. Uh, you noted that, quote, Cuba offers more opportunities than dead ends when it comes to human rights, including by easing relations with other countries and encouraging them to pressure Cuba to, quote, tolerate more dissent. Now, I am of the view that dissent should not be tolerated but embraced as a fundamental human right. Would you agree with that? I think that's a much better word, Senator. Okay. Uh, and these statements were made before the July 11 protests in Cuba this year, which with the regime unleashed a brutal wave of repression in response to average people, uh, most, mostly led by Afro-Cubans in terms of protests. So uh, if you are confirmed as the Assistant Secretary for DRL, uh, what are some of the specific steps you would take to advance democracy and human rights in Cuba? The protests in July, I think, reminded us very clearly, not just us here in the US, but globally, that what the Cubans need and are looking for, the Cuban people, are basic services and basic rights. And they go hand in hand. And so there really is an opportunity for the United States working closely with partners in the region and more globally to support civil society more extensively, to ensure they have access and are able to be amplified on larger platforms to share their experiences with such a brutal and horrific government. Because it is those experiences, it is those stories, and it is their fight for those basic rights that we need to be supporting. So there are questions about what we can support internet-wise. There are questions about what we can support media-wise. And I think the review that is underway, Senator, if I'm confirmed, is something that I'll want to be actively participating in. But even if that review is done before I'm confirmed, I look forward to working with you to figure out the best ways in which we can support civil society, amplify those voices, and make sure that there is an increase in support globally for the movement. All right. Thank you. Uh Senator Udall, you and I had a very good and in-depth conversation uh, yesterday about economic opportunities, about how, how AUKUS is going to affect uh, us with New Zealand and security, uh, bilateral relationship about New Zealand vis-a-vis -vis China. And so we had such a good in-depth conversation, I don't feel compelled uh, to uh, explore it again here with you today, but I don't want you to think you're not the object of my affection. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, with, with knowing everything that you and I spoke about, and I'm very pleased with the answers you gave me, um, I will uh, reserve at this time. Seeing no other member before the committee, uh, this record for this hearing will remain open until the close of business tomorrow, Thursday, September 23rd. Uh, please ensure that questions for the record are submitted no later than then, 
I urge the nominees to answer those questions fully and expeditiously so that you can be considered for a business meeting. And with the thanks uh, of the committee, this hearing is adjourned.